Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Sports Radio 94 WIP, I'm Tom Kelly with you on a Sunday morning, pleased to be with you. A number of things we will get to throughout the course of the show. Get to the Sixers later on as they uh, split their back-to-back on Friday and Saturday night. Um, not a good performance at all on Friday night in New Orleans. Uh, but they're able to bounce back Saturday against an Oklahoma City team that they should beat soundly. And they did beat soundly. And Joel Embiid... Plays in back-to-back games, which that's a very good sign moving forward. I I did not believe he was going to play tonight after um, the game on Friday, but Joel Embiid does play, uh, plays well after not playing well on Friday night. And the Sixers get the win. Tobias Harris, Danny Green sit out, but I don't think anything to be worried about there. So the Sixers uh, split their two games while Brooklyn gets lit up by the Lakers at home without LeBron James without Anthony Davis, and uh, these Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be very interesting. Is They're about, what, five, six weeks away from getting underway here, um, and I, I think you have four teams at this point that you could realistically see go to the finals between Brooklyn, the Sixers, Milwaukee, and Miami. So we'll talk a little later on uh, about the Sixers. We'll talk, uh, probably get into some Eagles stuff a little later on. On the next uh Four nights, so we have a lot of time uh, to talk draft over the next few nights here, uh, which we will. Um, and I did want to touch on a situation involving a current eagle um, that I think should remain a current eagle. So we'll get to that later on as well. But we will start with the Phillies as they lose to the Braves in Atlanta, five to four, in what was another winnable game this season. Phil's leading this one 4-3. Zach Eflin, unfortunately, can't hold it. Eflin, you know, pitched pretty well. He's a guy I'm high on this year. Uh, a guy who, I mean, I think is going to be a X factor for this team. I think on the pitching staff, um, Zach Eflin's performance is going to be critical 
for this team's team success. If he pitches more like a four or five, this isn't a playoff team. If he pitches like a two, they got a shot. Um, and did a pretty nice job for a while in this game. That is a real difficult lineup to navigate for a young pitcher. Um, gives up the homer, up 4-3, uh, and the uh, Braves tie it up. Bullpen then gives it up in the seventh inning. And very frustrating so far this weekend in Atlanta. Coming off that 5-1 and one start, a lot of optimism surrounding the Phils, and just two really poor performances. They'll be on Sunday night baseball tonight. Hopefully they can bounce back, at least salvage one game of this three-game set. But a tough series so far. You look at Friday night, Zach Wheeler really struggled. Um, a game the Phillies weren't really in, much of that due to their defense. Um, Alec Bohm, two errors in that game. Alec Bohm at third base is becoming a problem very quickly. We know what he can do with the bat. We know how talented he is. But his defense uh, creates major issues for this ball club right now. And he's going to have to clean it up over there because you're not going to win a lot of games when your third baseman is committing multiple errors. And we saw that from Boehm last year. Um, but a rough couple games so far. And it's troubling as the Phillies started 5-1. and one, And, you know, I wanted to believe that this team was different. And only eight games in, they very well may be. Like, it, as Jolly and I were talking about during the crossover, um, you can't draw any definitive conclusions about a team that plays 162 games after eight games. Like, that is insane. We all understand that. But these last two games particularly should concern you because these looked eerily similar to 2020 Philadelphia Phillies losses. I mean, let's be honest. These looked like games that the Phillies played last year where, you know, they are losing in ways that are frustrating and ways that they just shouldn't lose ball games. Like Friday night, that game should have been well within reach. Wasn't because of the defense. Saturday night, we'll get to what happened in the seventh inning. And what was said after the game, and, and I hope Joe Girardi was covering for his players because if he wasn't, then there are massive concerns at this point. But when you look at, at this team and you look at last season, and, you know, that's kind of where we'll start here because you look at the 2020 Phillies and the story of that team was obviously the bullpen. There's no doubt about that. The bullpen was awful, and the bullpen cost them many games, likely cost them a, a playoff spot. But we got so hyper-focused on the bullpen that we used it kind of as, as an excuse for everything else that this team didn't do well. And I get the bullpen was terrible, but they became a scapegoat, uh, uh, in a sense, for what really wasn't a good baseball team overall. And I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily roster-wise. I'm talking about from a perspective of just not playing the game the right way. 
not doing the things that you're supposed to do when you're out on the field as far as executing fundamentals. Because the, the facts of the matter were, yeah, it was, a, it was a bad bullpen, but this was also a team last year that did not play good defense. I mean, look at that series in Washington uh, the last week of the season. It was an Aaron Nola start in game two of a doubleheader. It was a terrible game defensively. Um, the final series against Tampa Bay, the Phillies needed to win one of three games to get to the postseason. Couldn't do it. Partially because the defense was bad. Partially because they had shifts on that they shouldn't have had on. And this was not exclusive to the final weekend of the year or the final week of the year. These were things that were happening with this team all season long. They weren't smart situationally. They didn't run the bases well. They didn't do the fundamental things well that you need to do to be a quality team, to be a a playoff team, even in a year with an expanded field. And these are all things that were supposed to get cleaned up with Joe Girardi. I mean, we heard about it at nausea leading into the 2020 season prior to spring training being shut down. I remember because at the time I thought it was ridiculous where, you know, a a bunch of people are saying, you know, Joe Girardi's going to come in, he's going to make this team 10 to 15 games better. Just getting rid of Kapler, inserting Girardi is going to make a difference for this ball club. And I'm waiting to see that difference present itself. Because this looks like the exact same team that we watched in 2018-2019. The exact same team. And I am by no means saying that everything that has happened over his 68-game tenure are Joe Girardi's fault. Of course not. And of course the players are the ones out on the field. Of course the players need to perform. Of course the players need to do the right things. But he was supposed to make a difference. And for a team that was bad fundamentally in 2018 and 2019, Joe Girardi, that was part of the te- the job he was being tasked with, was coming in and Joe Girardi's going to be like this hard-ass manager. That's what we heard. That he is going to get these guys in line. He's going to have them playing the game the right way. And we are not seeing that. And this is not exclusive to this season. This goes back to last year. And we can ignore last year if you want. Like, I've heard a lot of people, you know, just kind of shoving aside last year. Oh, it was a weird year. Bullpen was terrible. Uh, This is a real season. No, like, last year was a real baseball season that the Phillies performed poorly and that the Phillies underachieved. And Joe Girardi may have been a good manager when he was in New York. He may have done a good job when he was there. But Joe Girardi has not done a good job with the Phillies so far. And if you want to get in, 215-592-9494, 215-592-9494. I'd like to hear opinions on this because I continue to be baffled by the lack of accountability that we hold Joe Girardi to 
for for a manager of his uh, quote unquote caliber. You know, when when head coaches in this town, in every sport, are criticized and critiqued at length, even the really good ones. I mean, Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl a few years ago, and people wanted him out of town last year. A guy that went to the playoffs three years in a row. Andy Reid is one of the best coaches in the history of this town. Decade plus of success. A lot of people couldn't stand him in this town. What has Joe Girardi done in Philadelphia to have this type of of respect and, and immunity when his team continues to play dumb baseball and his team continues to make inexcusable mistakes on the field? Like, I look back at Charlie Manuel's tenure, and Charlie Manuel is the best manager, as far as I'm concerned, best manager in Philly's history. Now, may I be biased because, you know, he's the guy I kind of grew up watching while the team was good? Sure. But Charlie Manuel was a guy who took this team to heights that they had not reached as far as a five-year run was concerned. Charlie Manuel was the manager of the Phillies during the best five-year period in their history dating back to the late 80s. Late 1880s, not not 1980s, 1880s. And Charlie Manuel still gets called, uh, you know, in 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 some by some a, a buffoon and a guy that wasn't a great situational manager. That would while well, he managed teams that played the game the right way, that executed the fundamentals, that played good defense, that knew where to go with the baseball, that hit the cutoff men did those things that they were supposed to do. And I'm just perplexed at why Joe Girardi seems to have this immunity when his teams do not perform and his teams do not do the right thing. And I'm not talking about just not getting a big hit in a big spot. And yeah, we know the bullpen was bad last year. But it's not the only reason that team last year was not good. That team last year was not good for a number of reasons. The bullpen being chief among them. But they also were bad fundamentally. They played bad defense. They didn't execute running the bases. They didn't execute hitting cutoff men. They didn't do a lot of these kind of things that you must do to be a successful ball club. And we're seeing already in the first eight games, those kind of things rear their ugly head again this year. When you look at what happened on Friday night with Alec Bohm and him committing multiple errors. When you look at what happened on Saturday night with Jose Alvarado. And we'll get to the the exact aspects of that when we get back here. In terms of what happened on that play and why it happened, which I think is inexcusable. When you look at Joe Girardi on, on Tuesday night not having the foresight, not knowing his roster well enough to know that Vince Velasquez is a guy that blows up. And you're not going to have somebody ready in the bullpen until he already walks in a run. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't understand what Joe Girardi has done in this city to get, you know, Great manager status. Because that's all you hear when you talk about Joe Well, he's a good manager. Based on what in Philadelphia? 
He did a good job in New York. You know, there are a lot of managers that do a good job one place, do a bad job another place. Joe Girardi hasn't made this team any better. And the issues that Gabe Kapler got crushed for, and, you know, if Gabe Kapler made the comments after this game that Joe Girardi made after this game, we'd kill him. We'd say he's not holding players accountable, no accountability in the locker room, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, with Joe Girardi, yeah, just things happen. You know, Alvarado made a mistake. What are you going to do? Well, these are the kind of plays that cost you cost you games. And, yeah, it's only April 10th, but every game counts the same in the standings. And this was another winnable one. And I think we have seen two out of these three games so far this year that have been winnable that the Phillies have lost due to critical mistakes. One by Girardi managing on Tuesday night, one defensively on Saturday night, and a situation that they were not properly prepared for. That reflects back on the manager as well. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. 215-592-9494 to join the show. We have open lines to begin if you want to get in on the Phillies. But I want to know, how do you view Joe Girardi, and do you believe he's done a good job with the Phillies? I'm honestly curious. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, with you till 6, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP, I'm Tom Kelly, with you till 6. If you want to get in, open lines right now, 215-592-9494. Discussing the Phillies, and I want to know, do you believe Joe Girardi's done a good job? with this team so far in his tenure here. Um, because, you know, obviously, I'm not breaking any news when I tell you this team didn't have a good bullpen last year. We all know the bullpen was bad. But it became an excuse for a lot of issues. And, you know, I, I my greater point is, is that, you know, I we overrate baseball managers in general, to be honest with you. Like, Joe Girardi, I don't think he's done a great job, but... What was more always more absurd to me was the idea that people thought he's going to be a difference maker. Like there are very few managers who are difference makers. Like that's why I didn't think you know I thought the Kapler stuff was way overboard when he was here. And I was somebody who thought Kapler should have been gone after 2019 because I didn't think he kind of gave his team that urgency in the second half of that season they needed. Um, but. You know, I also don't think he's like this awful manager who was responsible for all these things. And it's amazing to me just the hypocrisy because these are the kind of instances, both Tuesday night with Velasquez, I mean, all three of these games. Tuesday night with Velasquez not having a reliever ready. Kapler gets killed for that. Friday night going out and making that mistake of visiting the mounts twice. I guarantee he gets slaughtered for that. And Saturday night with a pitcher not knowing where to go with the ball on a bullet right back to the mound. And, I mean, I, I, talking about what Jolly doing in the crossover, and I just disagree. I don't think that's a play you just brush under the rug and say it happens. Like, that is a mistake at that point in the ball game you can't make. Like, you are just out on the mound. You just make a pitching change. The infield is all there. You should be going over this exact scenario. What do you do if a ball's hit back to the mound? You got runners on the corners. 
either somebody's got to go cover the bag, and we'll play the audio in a minute here from the broadcast and Girardi afterwards. Somebody's either got to go to the bag at second, and you throw back, you go for the double play. Or Alvarado's got to look to third, at least look the runner back, go to first. Get him in a rundown, whatever. The one thing you can't do is exactly what the Phillies did. And uh, we'll get to Girardi's comments in a few minutes here. Because he defends it. And that is another scenario where if, if the Phillies made a mistake like that, and Gabe Kapler's the manager, and he defends it, then you know what all the talk's going to be after the game and all week? Nobody's held accountable in that in that locker room. Nobody's held accountable in that clubhouse. Uh, Gabe covering for his players. Well, where is that same kind of kind of attitude for Girardi? Because, uh, you know, he deserves it as well, and this is a lot of the same stuff. We're seeing a lot of the same kind of lack of fundamentals and dumb baseball that we saw from this team last year. Joe Girardi has not done a good job in his tenure so far with the Phillies, and it's okay to say that. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Let's get it started on the phones. Mike and Aston. What's up, Mike? Uh, yeah, I was. I guess you kind of said what I just said oh, uh, toward the end there about these players. It seems like you know, when I played uh, uh, so many years ago as a kid and all, they always told me, you know, in between the inning or the pitches, you know, think of what you're going to do when you if you get the ball, you know. And uh, I, Alvarado, you know, I, I I didn't see the game or the play, but you know, how how can he do that? I mean, you're supposed to think of a play. You know, while you know there's a break in the action or something, you can't wait till you get the ball and you know, and then, and then let's say he decided he wanted to go to second and think they could turn it, but he has to turn completely around, right, to throw the ball to second. I, uh, that's all I had to say. I yeah, no, I actually, Mike, I you know, and I guess if you see the play, like, and everybody can have a different opinion on it. I actually put it more on on Gregorius for not covering the bag, but. You know, you look at it, too. I don't understand kind of why you're not in double play depth there as instead of playing the infield in. I mean, I guess you can argue playing the infield in, bottom of the seventh. But, I mean, Freeman is a guy who doesn't run particularly yeah. well. You know, he eats a ground ball. You should feel, I think, pretty confident in being able to, to turn to there. Uh, well, I like I said, I didn't see the actual play or nothing. Right. I'm just hearing you from Paul on to now, and I – just thought I would call. That's the way I was always coached is think of what you're going to do with the ball before, you know, the tip of you, you know, you got to know where you're going to go or whatever. I didn't know about the glorious because I, again, I didn't see the play. Yeah. And, uh, but that's why you, you said another thing. I, I, I thought Joe Girardi was a better manager, a great strategist and he knows all this stuff and, you know, I I wonder like uh, what a guy like Dallas Green would have said if <laughs> if yeah. uh, he saw a play like that. I I don't know if he yanks somebody or fine him. I don't even know if they do that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, you know. Well, I uh, yeah. No, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks thanks for hopping in. Okay. All right. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Take, take it easy. Have a good one, Mike. And yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Like that's another thing that I I thought as well was that Joe Girardi was this uh, manager who's going to hold people accountable. Well. Didn't sound like that after the game. And for anybody that didn't see it, um, I want to go through the whole scenario for you real quick. Um, because uh, I thought Scott and, and Kevin Franzen did a tremendous job on the broadcast. First here, and, and I'll give you the situation. Here's the situation. One out, bottom of the seventh inning. Runners on the corners, Freddie Freeman 
at the plate 4-4 ball game. Uh, Philly's playing the infield in, not midway, not at double play depth, um, but infield on the grass, uh, and here is how it sounded on 94WIP. The stretch and the pitch. Swing and a comebacker to oh. the mound. Alvarado forgot about the runner at third, and he's going to score. They don't get an out on the play as Alvarado throws late. And the Braves have the lead 5-4 to four as Jose Alvarado forgets where the base runners are. Now, you know, the, as they're saying there, it seems like Jose Alvarado forgets about the runner on third. And, and I mean, in that spot, I think it's probably better to be safe than sorry. And if you're not going to get two, you got to make sure you don't that re- let that run score and you get one. Um, and it seems like the runner was going on contact. So maybe you can get him in a run down there. Um, you know, the runner will probably end up getting the third. He probably then end up with the second and third situation. Uh, so maybe you, you look him back and, and go to first. But, you know, Alvarado basically looks right back at second. He's expecting somebody to be covering the bag. And if that's the way it was designed, then I don't think it's a horrible play by Alvarado. But obviously a miscommunication between he he and Didi Gregorius. Here's more from Scott and Kevin. Here's Kevin Franzen with his kind of take on that play being a former infielder. What just happened? Freeman with a one-hopper right back to Alvarado who turned to start a double play. There's nobody covering at second. So he couldn't go for the double play. He turned around, looked at second, and saw Didi Gregorius pointing to the plate. That to me is, I think Jose Alvarado actually did it right. That was a one-hopper to him, and he was in perfect position to fire something to second base with nobody covering. It wasn't like it was going to be a hot shot to Didi, so why would he be coming in? Right? Wow. And, you know, Didi Gregorius, he does kind of break in on the play, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense because it didn't look like a ball that was going to get by Alvarado. Like, it was slightly to his right, but not enough where he wouldn't be able to field it. So you wonder what was the objective of that play. And I was very interested to see the postgame press conference because you knew that would be the first question asked to Joe Girardi. What happened and what was supposed to happen on that play? And I found his answers to be very puzzling. Here was Joe Girardi on um, Jose Alvarado's decision to try to go to second base. Joe, what's the what's the communication on that play uh, there in the eighth inning? Is, is it that Alvarado is to come home no matter what? Or what was the play there? No, if it, if you have a chance to turn a double play, I'm I'm okay with you turning double play. The the thing is, Didi's instincts took him to the ball, right? And Alvarado's not going to know that. So it's one of those things that it's just kind of perfectly placed um, where the ball's hit, and um, it cost us. Perfectly placed. The ball was hit right back to the pitcher. Like yeah, it was perfectly placed for you. Like it wasn't perfectly placed for the Braves. It was perfectly placed for you. And what Joe Girardi doesn't do there is explain why is Didi Gregorius not covering the bag? Like, the idea that his instincts took him to the ball, that doesn't make any sense. 
And again, these are the kind of things that if a different manager, like a Gabe Kapler, had made this kind of excuse, we would have slaughtered him for it. And rightfully so. Like, I would like to know what was the objective in that situation. Because that explanation didn't make any sense. Here's more uh, when Joe Girardi is pressed further on what happened. So, so you don't think that so Alvarado made the right thing? He, he thinking that that ball's hit hard enough. I have a chance to get. Two I points. thought he had a chance to you know turn a double play, but Didi reacted to where the ball was hit and went at the ball, thinking if it got you know past Alvarado. I mean, it's it's an instinctual play for Didi. Um, I don't have a problem with either one. Like I said, I think it's the perfect place ball. How frustrating then does that make yeah. that be? I mean, that's that, like, I mean, he, he does a great job. Of, yeah. yeah, he does a great job of getting Freddie Freeman to hit the ball on the ground, and it's it's frustrating. Again, like, the that this doesn't make that doesn't make sense. There's no way in hell that you played that the right way and the run from third scores and you don't record an out. Like, it, what is Joe Girardi talking about? We did, oh yeah, Alvarado and Didi did everything right, yet the run scored and we can't handle a simple comebacker to the mound. Like, this is a play that should be executed in middle school baseball. And the crazy part about it is the Phillies had just made a pitching change. Alvarado had just entered the game for Archie Bradley. How is this not something you have just gone over on the mound. You have Alvarado, you have JT Real Muto, who's playing catcher at the time, Andrew Knapp, who's at first base, um, Alec Bohm, you know, all the infielders are, are gathered around. Joe Girardi. You'd think they're going over instructions. Okay, the infield's playing in. Well, what do we do on a ball hit back to the pitcher? Like, this is not something that this team was prepared for. What you're going to do in this situation, a ball that's hit right back to the pitcher. That's like the one situation where you probably should go over it. Because you got to know who's covering second base. You got to know what is Alvarado supposed to do with the ball. Alvarado's got to be told, where am I going with the ball here? What what, What are the infielder's responsibilities? Who is covering what bag? And the fact that this team was not prepared for that situation is absolutely ludicrous. If you if you get out of that inning, that is a game changer there. An absolute game changer. Either you record the double play or you get the runner on third and a rundown, you get the next hitter, you get out of it 4-4. You're in the ballgame. This is not just a, a sweep it under the rug, ah, you know, it's fine. No, that's that's... Poor preparation, it's poor fundamentals, it's bad baseball. And I don't understand why we don't hold the manager accountable for these mental mistakes when this is something that happened a number of times last year. It gets overlooked because of the horrendous bullpen, but this is nothing new. And I don't know, I wasn't watching Joe Girardi's teams closely with the Yankees, but from what I was told, he was this great manager. I'm not seeing a team that plays smart baseball. And ultimately, when you see things like that happen, it's a reflection of your manager. 215-592-9494. Let's get to Matt and Potsdam. What's up, Matt? Hey, how's it going? I, honestly, I think 
really blown it way out of proportion. I mean, I can 100% see what you're already saying. I understand it's unfortunate, and there's a whole lot of ifs. Like, when you went down that scenario, there's like, there's like four ifs in there. If they did this, if the rundown, if, if, if. Off the crack of the bat, in live time, CD read the ball off the bat and reacted accordingly. You don't know that the, that the Alvarado's going to knock it down or keep it. We saw earlier in the game where a dangling arm from the pitcher all on his release, the ball just happened to come back and hit it, and then he had to go and you know, grab the ball and make a play. So for, from D.D.'s point of view, he doesn't know for sure that the guy's going to get it. So he's charging the ball, whereas if it bounces off the pitcher, he's going to get it and try to flip it to home plate. It just so happened that it, 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 just, it just happened to be one of those like, errors where, you know, okay, the guy made a run and everything's up. We're talking game seven, and we're talking in confidence and this, that, and, and you know, non-hustle, not smart play. It, I think it's just be blown way out of proportion. Well, I mean, Matt, Matt, in all, in all fairness here, I mean, we, yeah. still, we, still, we still talk about a pitching change Kapler made in the 2018 opener. Like, and we still but, to but, act like that's that the is, end of the world. But that is. That is something that, again, that's not 2020 hindsight. Wait, we're, what you're kind of doing, what a lot of people have done tonight, is they're looking at that with 2020 goggles, hindsight, and saying what could have, should have, would have happened. Okay, that's great. When you're talking about that pitching change that Gabe Kapler did, that happens 100 times during the season. This particular play that happened last night, you probably won't see that play again in the next 150 games. Well, what about what Kapler, what what about, Kapler did yeah. was reprehensible. Well, what about Tuesday night, Matt? Did you did you have a problem with him waiting for Velasquez to walk in the go-ahead run before somebody getting getting up, or you were fine with that too? Yeah. No, no, no. That one, no, that one. Maybe that is a bit of a, of a miss where you got to be more in step when you get guys. What, up what, the what about what about him forgetting the rules Friday night and going to the mound twice? Are you okay with that? Like, uh, I well, don't, not, I don't get what we're again, doing no, again, doing no, here. Defending. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not okay with it. But that you, that's not that happens in baseball. It's not like that's not completely uncommon. It does happen. And yes, okay. The past three days, there's been this, that, and the other thing. I get it. But this thing that happened tonight, you will not see that scenario again in 150 games in the Philly season, or maybe even in the rest of Major League Baseball. What you brought up in reference with Gabe Kaplan back then, that was reprehensible and should have never happened. And you know that. I know that. Anybody with two eyes that understands baseball knows that. That that's going to be the wrong move 100% of the time, every time. What happened last night was a fluke. Well, Matt, but this is the thing, though. This is the – fine. You don't want to compare it to to Saturday night. Fine. But – Tuesday night, what Girardi did, I thought was equally as bad as what Kapler did. Yet nobody, uh, I mean, we don't hear any outrage uh, amongst, uh, you know, fans for that. To leave Velasquez, a guy who we know implodes, let him walk in a run, and everybody just says, oh, it's Velasquez's fault. No, you got to know who you have on the mound and what he does. And what he does is implode. If that's Kapler, is he not getting killed for it? Oh, if that's Kapler, I agree with you. But Kapler had all these other things, too. I agree with you. The Velasquez thing... Again, I'm not I'm not flipping out over it, but that, of all the things that we've just discussed, that's the one that might sit in my crawl the most. Walking out there to talk to the pitcher and not, and, you know, maybe forgetting that somebody else had already done it, so this has to actually be an exchange. You know, that that happens in baseball. It's unfortunate, but sometimes that does. If there's one that sticks out for me uh, way more than what happened last night, it's definitely the Velasquez one. I'll give you that. Okay. That one. It, that one is. I can't call it reprehensible, but that is one that no, you should know your you should know your pitchers. You should know the situation, and and not more than just Girardi. How many guys walk around a dugout that could say like, hey, hey Skip, like somebody should have been saying something well before it got to that. Agreed, agreed, and I appreciate the back and forth, Matt. I enjoy oh, it. Absolutely, thank yeah. you for the time. Take it easy, man. Yeah, have a good one. And yeah, I I, I mean. I I enjoy you know disagreeing and talking it out. Matt Matt knows his stuff, and you know 
I, I get it. I just I find the double standard to be fascinating. What do you think of that? Dan Wilson producing tonight. What do you think of the double standard, Dan? It, I, I do find it to be fascinating. It's infuriating, and it's because Joe Girardi is a better public speaker than Gabe Kapler is. Like, people see Gabe Kapler, and they see New Age baseball and everything that's wrong with analytics, and a guy who, truth be told, probably, if there's one thing that he, I would guess, is probably worse at than Joe Girardi, it's maybe the managing the people in the clubhouse aspect of it. But when it comes to baseball decisions, I don't think Joe Girardi is head and shoulders above Gabe Kapler. I think Gabe Kapler managed two teams that had he had worse rosters, and he managed a 500 team in a game that was below 500. And last year, Joe Girardi had the team two games below 500. And granted, the bullpen was horrible, but if we're talking just on-field decisions, I think they're pretty similar. Yeah, and I think when you look at it, and you know, I my my point mainly here, and it comes, it, it always it will sound like I'm anti-Girardi, which I mean, and uh, as I said, I don't think he has done a very good job in in his time here. But uh, the main point is is in my mind that I just don't think baseball managers are that impactful. And I thought the the criticism, the over-the-top criticism of Kapler when he was here was was just that, was over-the-top. And um, I just would, I, I find it fascinating just the difference in how these two guys are, are treated publicly um, because, you know, a lot of these mistakes the Phillies are making, are they disastrous? Are they things that you um, should necessarily kill the manager for every night? No. But, I mean, you got to keep it keep it equal. And these are things that, that Kapler would have gotten crushed for, and Girardi's just not. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. 215-592-9494. Got some open lines if you want to get in. Uh, John, see you right there. John will be first right after the break, and then you if you want to join the show. Talking Phillies and your thoughts on Joe Girardi. The job he's done so far in Philadelphia. Um, and also, you know, what, I mean, do you hold him responsible for what happened Saturday night? I do. Like, I think you just had a meeting on the mound. You got to know what happens on a comeback or the pitcher. This team was unprepared. And, you know, I don't think that reflects reflects well on the manager of the club. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP, I'm Tom Kelly. If you want to get in, 215-592-9494. You heard uh, in the return there, so close you can smell Bryce Harper. A a funny video from Atlanta where a a fan was heckling Bryce Harper mercilessly, saying you'll never be as good as Acuna, all this stuff, and Bryce is clearly um, just yelling back to him, it's Acuna, uh, and uh, correcting him. I, I thought that was a pretty funny video. Uh, so check that out if you haven't seen it. And I did want to real quick, if you've um, uh, listened to me often, you know um, that I am uh, ha- have a newborn at home, a uh, five-and-a-half-week-old child now. And I did want to congratulate my brother Jerry and his wife Allie as they welcomed their first child on uh, Saturday, Wyatt Joseph. So... Um, my my son has a, a little cousin now, uh, so they will, you know, grow up together and uh, be the same age. So congratulations to uh, my brother and sister-in-law on their child. 
215 uh, 5929494 if you want to get in. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Go to John and Hazelton. What's up, John? Hey, Don. You know, I wanted to talk about uh, Savior Joe again. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the double standard is insanity. You know, every Phillies group I'm in on social media, I brought up the other night when he, for, you know, the mound visit and. Oh, it was the bench coach. It was the bench coach's fault. It was this guy's fault. It's not Joe's fault. It's like this guy's God. I don't get it. He, he has nothing. He's done nothing in Philly. No, John. It's it's kind of crazy. Like I don't I don't get it. Like, and I I don't like hate Joe Girardi. I don't have anything against Joe no, Girardi. I just I think no. I just think you know if you're gonna call it one way, you got to call it both ways. And and these are things that the previous manager would have gotten absolutely destroyed for. And Girardi just gets excuses made for him. All the time, and in my mind, he's made egregious mistakes in all three of these games. The only conclusion I can come up with, and I've said this before, is the hatred for Kapler was so over the top in the city that nothing that Girardi does is a problem to most of them because they're just so happy that he was he's gone, which is insane to me. If they don't, if they're not, if they're not playing meaningful baseball in the end of September this year, I, I think I'm, I'm ready to move on. Yeah, I mean, with this roster, John, I mean, they should be playing meaningful baseball at the end of September. And I mean, uh, I mean, the, the and we can't just overlook last year either. And I know the bullpen was terrible, but even with a bullpen that was bad, they lost a lot of games for for other reasons. And in an expanded field, there's no excuse for them to miss the playoffs last year. And if they are not in contention at the end this year, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. Like we haven't had. A team with a winning record since 2000, what, 2011 now? Yeah. They spent money. Like, this is on him, man. He, if, 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 I'm, just, I'm just tired of the double standard, man. And, and you know what? I'll let you go, but I immediately was thinking of you because I was listening <laughs> in the morning, the night after the, Velasquez. The, 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 the Velasquez, and nobody had a problem with it. In the morning crew was like, uh, no, it's, I, it's I, I, no, John, and I was arguing with Al during the overlap, right? And it. Al just Al wouldn't give me anything on it. I'm like, all right, it. just dismissed it. And if it was Kapler, we know they would have been they would have been out with pitchforks. It's yeah. ridiculous. No, I, I agree, John. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, take it easy. And yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to get Al like, and Al kept hammering Velasquez. And I I'm not defending Velasquez. And I was I. It's funny because when that game happened, uh, I was actually thinking of Jolly because Jolly cannot stand Vince. Velasquez. Can't stand him. Said he's not a major leaguer, which he may not. Right? Yeah, I think he's probably not. But as a one inning, like you know, from Seinfeld, where George tries to go out on a high note, like that's what they should have done with Velasquez. Like, got the one inning, should have been like, that's it for him. Get him out. Should have absolutely. And he probably has a role on some bad major league roster as a one inning guy. I don't want him on the Phillies. I think this is seven tries is enough, right? I don't think he's on a contending ball club, and he definitely shouldn't be your multiple inning guy or a potential starter if a guy goes down and I but he probably could get himself on a major league team change the scenery someone will give him an inning right yeah I, I don't think he's a major league pitcher at this point I think Jolly's, no, he he's played himself right out of it yeah I think Jolly's right about that um but it was funny because the day after the day after I'm, I'm arguing with Al during the during the overlap and uh, you know he keeps going back oh this Velasquez and I'm like yeah like Al I, I get, we all know Velasquez stinks. Like, we all know Velasquez 
was bad. And and uh, you know, and this is what would drove me nuts. And a, a lot of things Al says drive me nuts. You Al and I, see, you can see him boiling over. Right. The second he walks one guy, you, it snowballs to two, three, and four. And he walked in a run. And when he came out, the other three runners he walked all came around to score also. Right. And you know that that's what that's what we're we're arguing about. And um, Al keeps saying Velasquez, Velasquez, and I'm like, yeah, we know Velasquez stinks, but that's where the manager needs to have some sort of a feel, and the manager needs to know his players and know the guy he has on the mound. And once Velasquez walks that first guy, you have to have somebody ready to go to come in in that spot. And um, you know. And he wasn't giving me anything on, oh, you know, you can you can uh, blame Girardi. I'm going to blame Velasquez. Fine. But, I mean, uh, these are things that other managers, and I'm not just talking about Gabe, because, honestly, I don't care about Gabe. Uh, we play the Gabe sound in the morning just because it's funny, and Gabe says funny things. Um, but I don't care about Gabe Kapler. I don't think he's a good manager. I don't think he's a bad manager. I think he's just he's a run-of-the-mill major league manager. But if you are going to crush him for every strategical decision that he makes, why are we not doing the same thing for Girardi when Girardi has legitimately this year, I feel like, lost the Phillies that game Tuesday night, made a mistake that is inexcusable Friday night, and didn't have his team prepared for a pretty standard situation. That's where I will agree with... uh, the previous caller, Matt, in regards to you know that being a one one in a hundred play, I, I don't think that's a one in a hundred play. I think that's a pretty standard play to know what to do in that spot and with where the infield is. So I, I think it's we've seen a team so far this year that's been unprepared, and that to me is is inexcusable. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. Let's get Drew in here. Wants to talk a little bit about the Sixers. What's up, Drew? Hey, what's going on, man? Hey. Real quick, how I, how I want to start it is, whenever I ever do call, it's always on your show. I don't know why, but you seem like a cool dude. So oh, thanks, Drew. Appreciate I, it. I always like calling it on your show. Thanks. Uh, um, I got two quick questions. Uh, first question about the Sixers. So, you know, I watched the, uh, you know, the Brooklyn game and the Sixers game tonight. Uh, at any point in the seven-game series between the Sixers and potentially the Nets, do you think that all three, James Harding, KD, and Kyrie, will play each game together. It seems like somebody is always going to be out in one of those games, and that would be the game to steal. Yeah, right, I mean, I, I hope not, Drew. I hope they don't all play together because, I mean, all those guys together would be really scary. But even even so, like, I don't know. There's something about the Nets thing that if they don't play together at all, and it, who knows, you could throw all three of them together and they might be great enough where it might not matter, but – they're a bad defensive team, and and I feel like defense is something that is difficult just to like get a rhythm on in the playoffs if you haven't played together. So I mean, I think the Sixers would have a shot in that series, but it's it's definitely scary if those three guys are all together on um, the entire series. And and I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, when you look at the fact they've all been banged up, certainly there's a chance that that one one of those guys could could miss some time. Certainly. Yeah, exactly, because they haven't played together much since they all been together. No. So I think seven games that. all year it's been. Right. That's right. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And the second question, I uh, I listen to the show, right? doesn't matter if I know anything about baseball or hockey. Mm-hmm. I'll still listen to you because 
for some reason now I've soaked the knowledge up and maybe I'll see it somewhere and apply it. Oh, but thanks, Drew. When it comes to learning about one of these sports, because I don't watch it because I don't understand it, but, you know, I'll still, you know, root for the home team and try to give it a chance. What do you think is the hardest sport to learn for someone who knows nothing about it, baseball or hockey? Because I don't understand either one of them. Oh, I think hockey is much – hockey is – it seems like it's it's difficult um, to learn, like, the X's and O's. Like, uh, I honestly don't know all the X's and O's of hockey. I think baseball you'd be able to pick up. Okay. Is it a simple yeah. way to, like, explain it to somebody? Like, you know, basketball, point guard, shooting guard, he does this, Right. He does I that. mean, baseball, you know, you got your outfielders, you got your infielders, your pitcher, your catcher, um, and learning, like, the, the – Inside outs of the game could take a little bit of time if you haven't paid attention to it, but I I think you could pick it up. Okay, all right, so, baseball. Well, I'll yeah. give it a shot. Go give it a shot. And, and thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Always taking my call. Thanks. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, I mean, that's great. You know, looking to get into a new sport, looking to get into baseball. Baseball can be a little slow at times, but, you know, it gives you something. It's it's nice to have to watch every day and, and nice to have something to – to, to, to discuss. So, yeah, I, I, I'd encourage Drew uh, to get into baseball. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. 215-592-9494. We'll continue talking about the Phils and Joe Girardi um, and the job he's done. Uh, and if you want to get in on that, you're welcome to. We've got open lines right now. But uh, we did talk a little Sixers with Drew. I do want to talk a little bit about the Sixers when we get back and their last couple nights as they split a back-to-back on Friday and Saturday. So we'll do that when we get back. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly with you on a Sunday morning. Well, later on, we'll have a uh, Masters update for you as they uh, enter the final day on Sunday. Um, I, I was very relieved to see uh, when I woke up from a little nap on Saturday uh, afternoon slash evening, that Hideki Matsuyama had taken a four-shot lead um, because I was on the verge of just a catastrophic disaster and still could be if this thing goes the wrong way. But um, are, you, are you a golf better, Dan? Do you bet on golf? No, but my friends are very into golf betting, so I hear a lot about it. I'll tune in tomorrow for the final day of a major, but I'm not big into golf betting. So I'm guessing you have a bet. Well, no, I I had a almost bet. Um, And we'll do the full uh, update later on. But I had talked about this with Angelina on Wednesday morning. We did a Masters preview. And I I, I said on the air that I really like Justin Rose plus 10,000. And I was going to put... 10 bucks on Justin Rose. And if I had put 10 bucks on him, I would have won $1,000 if he won this tournament. And I forgot to do it. Justin Rose had been leading the entire way up until about midway through his round today. Now, Matsuyama went nuts in the third round, took a, a four-shot lead. He's at minus 11. Rose is in a group with three other golfers who are four back at minus seven. So he's still in the mix. But if Justin Rose wins this tournament and I did not put in tied, this, yeah. and I didn't put in this $10 bet to win a thousand, I'm going to be very upset with myself. So you're now just rooting against Justin Rose. So yes. You can live with yourself. Understood. Yes. So I don't have any money on it, but, um, but the thought of the bet yes. is making you now root against just anyone, but Justin Rose can win. So what's nice now is I'm, I have a rooting interest 
but I don't have any money at stake. Um, so but, if Rose but in falls the end, out of it tomorrow, like if Rose today. wins, I'm gonna feel like I just lost a thousand dollars. How but, funny is it gonna be if Ro- if it comes down to like Rose and Matsuyama or someone else, and you're now rooting for this other guy to hit a putt to win the Masters just so Rose doesn't win? Well, this is the thing. I was actually thinking maybe I'll now just put like ten bucks on Rose if I see what his odds are, just to kind of if he Alleviate does win some of the pain. Yeah, uh, if he does win, it can kind of take away some of the pain, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, that he fell back and he's not uh, the leader a- at this point. Are you usually a big golf guy or just... Majors. You know, yeah, I watch ma- the majors. Majors and, like, the end of majors. And I'm a big Tiger fan, so I'm not as into this one. But I, I like golf. That's, I like that's the... how I feel. Like, golf needs a face again. Yeah, I mean, they have they have some interesting guys now. I like Justin Thomas. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of the young guys. I like Brooks Kepka, uh, but uh, he didn't make the cut. So, you know, I, I enjoy the majors. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Talking Phillies. We'll get to the Sixers in a few minutes here. But uh, Phillies, another mishap. Um, this time in the field and poor defense. This is something that's been a theme with this team since, you know, really over the last few years. But all I remember hearing people say is Joe Girardi's going to clean it up. Well, if anything, it's gotten worse under Joe Girardi. Because this is a problem last year, been a problem this year. And cost the Phillies a game just not knowing what to do. And what made it even worse was after the game, Girardi says, as far as he saw it, his guys did everything right. Well, no. If a ball gets hit back to the mound and a guy scores from third, your team didn't do everything right. And uh, I, I I don't understand that logic. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Greg in the Northeast. What's up, Greg? Hey, guys. Oh, we lost Greg. Well, Greg, call back if, if you want, um, and we'll get you right back up. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is one of those things that is very frustrating. When you look at this team and them giving away games, because, I mean, honestly, they're just they're not good enough to give away games like this. They're not. And, you know, we look at it, and you'll say, well, it's 162. And, yeah, sure, it is one of 162. But they all count the same. You know, whether you win a game in April or you win a game in September, they're more magnified in September, sure. But, I mean, they all count in the win-loss column the same, especially against divisional opponents. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it it's frustrating to see the Phils give one away against the Braves. Let's get back to Greg here. What's up, Greg? Hey, guys. How you doing tonight? Good. What's going on? I I want to talk a little about the Phillies. Um, I think the Phillies, uh, like total, maybe had like six hits today. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Uh, Eflin went like six innings, seven hits, you know, four earned runs. The bullpen came in Bradley about uh, Alvarado and uh, was a Coonrod or something. Yeah, they totaled all of about maybe. Down the two innings pitched combined, Something point like one. You know what I mean, they let up a couple hits. All right, our bullpen isn't as bad as it was, you know, you know, previously. But it, it is getting better, in my opinion. I think our oh. first three starters, like Wheeler, Nola, and Eflin, are 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 the keys to, like, you know. Uh, Going further, go, making a run. Well, what, along, what, along with the the bats, 
too. Greg, were you frustrated by that play in the seventh inning where without, Alvarado didn't without know what without to do? Alvarado? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, 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 I'm sorry, but um, I learned that in like, like squirts, like Pee Wee baseball. Right. You know what I mean? Like that is like such a mental mistake that he should have never made. I'm sorry that that cost us the game. It did. Yeah, that that's what and I thought too, Greg. It absolutely did. And people are saying, "Oh no, no, Joe Girardi, blah blah blah." No, no, Joe Girardi should have been on that stadium and blasting him for that because that's what real coaches do. Not, I'm not saying out, out on like you know on the podium in front of the in front of the the press. But you bring him in your office and you blast him for that. Right. Well, well, Greg, you know, no, I, I hear you. And I appreciate the call. Thanks. And, um, you know, I hope that Joe Girardi was lying in his, in his comment. And we'll play it for you again here um, because uh, it didn't seem to make sense to me after the game. But here was Joe Girardi. And, and I'll reset the table for you here. Um it was bottom of the seventh inning, uh, runners on first and third with one out. Now, obviously, if you can get a double play ball, that's ideal. But the infield was playing in, um, so you'd think that they'd be aware there. And Alvarado had just come into the game. You know, this isn't a scenario where they're they're communicating with their hands and stuff like that. No, this was a situation where Alvarado just comes in, the whole infield's there, they're talking it over with Joe Girardi. Like, you got to go over in that spot. You'd think, okay, what do we do with the ball when it goes to a certain person? Where are the infielders playing, and how do we react? Um, and here was Joe Girardi explaining that, in his mind, when asked, he thinks Alvarado did the right thing. Joe, what's the, what's the communication on that play uh, there in the eighth inning? Is, is it that Alvarado is to come home no matter what, or... What was the play there? No, if it, if you have a chance to turn a double play, I'm I'm okay with you turning double play. The the thing is, Didi's instincts took him to the ball, right? And Alvarado's not going to know that. So it's one of those things that it's just kind of perfectly placed um, where the balls hit, and um, it cost us. Now I don't know why Didi's instincts are taking him to the ball. There, like I get, you know, you see a ball hit. It's in your general direction, May, maybe. But but Didi Gregorius has to know that his his responsibility there is to cover the bag, and you know he's got to understand that when Alvarado he can see Alvarado is going to make that play. He's got to get to the bag. Like I, 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 this, is a ball hit back to the pitcher. You got to be ready for this scenario, and the Phillies just clearly weren't ready for it. Here's more from Girardi on it being a perfectly placed ball. So, so you don't think that so Alvarado made the right thing? He, he thinking that that ball hit hard enough, I have a chance to get. Two. I thought he had a chance to, you know, turn a double play, but Didi reacted to where the ball was hit and went at the ball, thinking if it got, you know, past Alvarado. I mean, it's it's an instinctual play for Didi. Um, I don't have a problem with either one. Like I said, I think it's the perfect place ball. How frustrating then does that make yeah. that be? I mean, that's that like. I mean, he, he does a great job. Of, yeah. yeah, he does a great job of getting Freddie Freeman to hit the ball on the ground, and it's it's frustrating. Now, in a way, I get what what you're already saying, but it just it just can't happen. It just can't happen, and you got to be 
better prepared in that spot where Didi's got to know to get to the bag. You know, he's got to trust in that spot that the pitcher's going to make a play. It was not a difficult play for Alvarado to make. Like, like, and I think the way it's being framed by Joe Girardi there is is not is not right. Like, and if Didi Gregorius broke the wrong way, you know, say Didi Gregorius broke the wrong way, but saying it's a perfectly placed ball for the Braves and it's hit right back to the pitcher, it's just not true. It's disingenuous. Let's go to Tom. What's up, Tom? Hey, Tom, it's an honor to be on the line with you. How are you? Uh, thanks, Tom. It's an honor to have you on. Congratulations. I haven't spoke with you. That's uh, great news. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, I was watching the Phillies tonight. And, uh, you know, it's kind of poetic justice, I guess you'd say, because I live, uh, Atlanta's the closest major city to me. It's 200 miles northeast and these Braves fans sellouts from the word go <laughs> Atlanta fans to begin with uh what a joke tonight I got so frustrated tonight Tom yeah Tom it, it is frustrating and you know especially in that spot in the game to make that mistake it, it just it can't happen it just can't happen not when you're playing a team like the Braves if, right and if you look up and down at the, the between the Phillies and the Braves lineup you're going to see at the top of the lineup, they have speed along with power, and they, they can make it go. They're, they're a good team. They have a pretty good start in pitching staff. Their bullpen's a little bit questioned, you know, uh, suspect, so to speak. But, uh, you know, they're still a solid team, and we're going to have to step it up if we're going to take these guys. I think we're a couple players away, to be honest yeah. with you. How great is Acuna, Tom? Like, he is a he is a tremendous player. He's a really fun player to watch, honestly. Oh my God! Does he have a stick on him or what? Yeah, he does. He is a he is Alva player. He hit one last night that was just a dead center, you know. And the Phillies have never played well in Atlanta, even when the Braves were horrible. They just for some reason they don't play well in Atlanta. But Girardi, he's covering his player, and I could I kind of understand that in a way. It was a bang bang play, but still, I mean, he's got to know. He's got to know where to go with that. I mean, that guy's been pitching probably or playing baseball since youth baseball. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, I, I don't know what the situation is, but uh, hopefully we could salvage a game out of this series. Yeah. No, that's what you got to hope for, Tom. You got to hope that, um, that, that they can get one tomorrow with uh, Matt Moore on the mound here. So hopefully they can get it. Hopefully. I was going to ask you my sure. opinion on the Eagles coming back, uh, Howie Roseman going back to 12. I thought that was a pretty good move. Hell, I'd go back to 18 if we could get another number one for next year. I agreed with that. Yeah, Tom, no, I agree with it too. I think it was a smart move. You get the pick for next year, and I mean, with all the quarterbacks that are going to go in the top 10, you should still get a, a player at number 12 that can really help you, and I mean, how, what do you think, Tom? I think they're going to end up with your guy, Devontae Smith. What, what do you think of him? Well, that would be fine, either him or Waddle, if yeah. they fall to 12. And honestly, Tom, I think Waddle is actually better than Smith because he went under the radar because he got hurt. You know what surprised me a little bit, speaking about Atlanta, mm -hmm. the Falcons are shopping that number four pick, and yeah. I figured that would be a lock for the for the cornerback from Alabama, Patrick Sertan. God, he's a lockdown corner, Tom. He, and he hits hard, too. He's kind of like a Brian Dawkins. Now, that's the guy 
that could change a franchise, yeah, in my opinion. I like him, Tom, and I appreciate the call, man. Thanks. Tom down in Alabama, so he's an expert on all these guys. But um, I think Sertan falls a, a little bit. I don't think he's going for – I think ultimately somebody is going to trade into four for a quarterback. I think you look at right now, um, the way it's setting up, Lawrence is obviously going to go one to Jacksonville. Wilson's going to go two to the Jets. Uh, the Niners at three – now, there's a lot of smoke surrounding them with Mac Jones, which really the, the one person who's saying that that I really buy into because of his relationship with the coach is Chris Sims, where Chris Sims Chris Sims and Kyle Shanahan are like best friends, and Chris Sims is saying, you know, it's Mac Jones, which maybe it is, but I, uh, you know, that could also be a, a smokescreen of sorts. I kind of think the Niners are going Trey Lance, but regardless, quarterback's going to go there. I think somebody trades into four for Fields or Jones or Lance, whoever's left, whether that be Denver, whether that be um, uh, New England. I think you could see New England trade up. New England probably more likely to trade up uh, into the bottom half of the top ten. You know, I could see them moving up to like eight uh, to take uh, Justin Fields or somebody like that because – I forget who's drafting at eight, but it's a team that I think might trade out. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it is. It's it's escaping me right now, but um, I think it's a team that could trade out. Uh, I could see Denver trading up to four, but Atlanta's probably going to trade out of that pick. A quarterback will go, and I, regardless, I think you're going to have five quarterbacks go in the top 11. And if you have five quarterbacks go in the top 11 – the Eagles are going to have their choice at Carolina at eight. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and they just traded for Darnold. So, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of options at 12. And, I mean, I think the Eagles are going to end up with Devontae Smith. And if you – and I know a lot of people – everybody hates Howie these days. You know, it's just the fashionable thing to say. But, I mean, if the Eagles trade from six to 12, Get a number one pick next year and end up with Devontae Smith. That's a good, that's a great outcome. Like, that's a great result. Um, and, you know, whether it's Smith, Sertan, I think the Eagles are going to end up with a really good player at that spot. And, you know, I, I know the reasoning for, for people hating the trade down was, well, six is idiot proof, was the argument. I mean, I think 10, 12 is, is, uh, pretty idiot proof as well because you know they're the, the top half of the first round this year um is is pretty stacked 215-592-9494 let's go to leon and dallas what's up leon so how's it going tom good, how, how you doing, doing man good how are you doing great great so yeah i kind of agree with the last caller you know um with the birds swapping back at first you know it definitely was a sour taste in everybody's mouth when how or when that pick was announced because remember, it was right before the freaking um, Dolph, or who was it? Was it the, the was it San Fran? And they yeah. trade out the Eagles. Yeah. Uh, well, San Fran actually traded up to three. The Dolphins traded down, then the Dolphins traded back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was just all over the place. So wait, so which pick did we get? Did we get the Dolphins' original pick, or did we get one of their picks that they got from San Francisco? We did, got. Do you happen to know that? Yeah, we. What, what the Eagles ended up getting was. San Fran's original pick at 12. Yeah, San Fran's original pick is what the Eagles ended up with. 
And for next year, would, did we get the Dolphins' first-round pick or was it a San Fran first-round pick? That's uh, the question I was asking. Oh, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know. you know, the Dolphins, yeah. So the oh. Eagles, as of now, they own – well, I mean, if Carson Wentz plays 75% of the snaps, uh, they own three first-round picks. They own the Colts and the Dolphins. And about that, that was a great point you mentioned because I was going to get to Carson – um, which I'm glad he's gone, by the way. I just had to throw that out there. I'm so happy he's gone. But, no, I thought that the first-round conditional pick was, yes, if Carson plays 75% and if the Colts make the playoffs. Is that true? or No, it's just 75%. It's either, it's either he plays 75% in the regular season, that would get the Eagles to pick, or he plays 70% and the Colts make the playoffs. So as long as he plays 75% of the snaps, the Eagles get that pick. Gotcha, because, yeah, I would – I just knew there was, you know, a bunch of protections on that pick. And, you know, I don't really like trading for conditionals because right. sometimes you get screwed over, especially like, like in the NBA if you put like a, you know, a, a protection on a pick. But either way, you know, I, I mean, I, I did like the overall pick going back from 6 to 12. I just hope we can get somebody, a couple mock drafts out there saying, you know, Kyle Pitts is going to be there at 12. They're crazy. You know, Pitts is going to be gone off the board. Clearly, uh, Chase, he'll probably be going to the top fifth. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind the kid. What is it? Oh, but, uh, the, 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 the other two um, kids from Alabama. I think we couldn't go wrong with those. But one thing I'm also concerned about, Tom, before I get off the phone here, is that this coaching staff, you know, just because, you know, we pretty much got a whole new staff from the defense into the offense, I'm still not, you know, um, I'm still not comfortable with this team. I was actually super mad when Doug got fired. I, I did not believe he should have got fired, and I believe everybody should have came back next year. So that is the one concern I do have about this upcoming season because guess what? If, if the coordinators are all bad, then that's who they're just going to blame it on, and it's just going to be another waste of season. So we'll have to yeah. see. But anyway, I appreciate it, though, Tom. No, thanks, and, uh, Have a great night. Yeah, you too, man. I appreciate it. And yeah, I'll talk about that later on because – and, you know, you can't read too much into this stuff, but – we, we read so much into the press conference, or I guess analyzed it to death, the Nick Sirianni press conference. But I really liked the thing that Nick Sirianni did on Eagles.com this week with Fran Duffy um, breaking down plays. Like, I thought it was really cool. And, and I'll play that later on for you. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm starting to get a better feeling about Nick Sirianni. Like, and we'll, we won't know until they play. I mean, let's face it. We won't know until they play. But I I feel like he's one of those guys. He might just be one of those guys, not a great public speaker. But he seems like the kind of coach that get him in a locker room, get him with players, get him in an environment that he is comfortable with. And, and you know, I, I think he's going to be a completely different guy. Like, this thing the Eagles did, and if you didn't watch the whole, well, we'll play a couple clips later on, but if you didn't watch the whole thing, it's a 25-minute video with him and then Fran Duffy, who's the Eagles.com uh, like, like film guy, and they're an just sitting down analyzing film together. And Sirianni seems so comfortable, so relaxed. You know, you can the enthusiasm you can really feel that the guy does care. Um, and, you know, I'm starting to get a better feeling that maybe he can coach a little bit. Now, Doug wasn't a great public speaker when he got here and really never became a great public speaker. I still think Doug was a good coach. Um, that stuff really doesn't 
matter to me at all. Um, you know, and I think Sirianni uh, could have something to him. And I'm I'm excited for this season. I I I think this team's going to be better than people people are are giving them credit for right now. Like I just do. Um, I don't think the roster is nearly as bad as people think it is. I mean, I look at both lines. I think the lines are in pretty good shape. I think the offensive line, if they come back healthy, and I, I granted that's a big if. You got some older players, Brooks and Lane coming off serious injuries, but if their line comes back healthy, that's going to be one of the best offensive lines in football again. And they have some depth. Um, I like the way Herbig played last year. He'll be back. Uh, Dillard will probably be a backup as a as a backup tackle. I'm okay with him. Um, at this point, obviously, that's not what you want out of a first-round pick in his third year, but I, I, I'm i okay with him in that role, assuming Malata gets the starting job. Um, you know, you have some options there, and uh, with the amount of picks this team has, they're going to add to the roster. Again, We, I understand the drafting history, but the fact that you have more picks is not a bad thing. Like, this argument the dumbest argument that i hear is oh well what is howie gonna do with he's just gonna screw these picks up anyway i mean it's just so idiotic that it's not even worth entertaining because you look at the teams in in the nfl that have rebuilt and rebuilt effectively miami cleveland they didn't do that because they hit big time on every single pick they did it because they had a lot of picks and they can miss on some picks, and they hit on other ones. The Eagles haven't had an enough, enough picks in the past few years, uh, you know, to where they could absorb the misses. And that is what excites me. And I mean, I I think if really it comes down to Sirianni and Hurts, I like what I saw from Hurts. If Sirianni can coach a little bit, this could be a team can compete in a bad division next year. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. I'm Tom Kelly. Uh, when we get back, we will talk Sixers. See, Grant wants to talk Sixers. Talk to Grant when we return. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly with Till Six. If you want to get in, open lines right now, 215-592-9494. Talking about a, a host of different uh, subjects. Whatever you want to get in on, Eagles draft which uh, fast approaching, only about two and a half weeks away at this point. Um, So very excited for that. Uh, See what the Eagles do with the number 12 pick. Uh, Talking about that, talking about the Phillies and their loss, a frustrating loss on Saturday night um, as make a mistake. Jose Alvarado not knowing where to go with the baseball. Didi Gregorius not covering second base. And just a frustrating loss um, for the Phillies. As, uh, you know, uh, just unprepared and, and poor defense and really no excuse for it. Um, and a lot of the things Joe Girardi was supposed to clean up, I don't think have been cleaned up since he's come in here. And, and you know, 68 games into his tenure, hasn't done a very good job. And that's just the reality of the situation here. Um, in Philadelphia, he had a bad moment Friday night, forgot about the fact that he couldn't go out to the mound. Uh, that made the Phillies make a change that they probably didn't want to make, taking Wheeler out of the game. Um, Tuesday, not having reliever up for when Velasquez uh, was was imploding on the mound. And 
uh, just a really bad first week of the season for Joe Girardi. So discussing that as well, and the Sixers as they split their back-to-back this weekend. Two games they should have won, honestly. I mean, uh, New Orleans, they, they just stunk up the joint on Friday night. But at least bounce back, got a win against Oklahoma City Saturday. Let's go to Grant in Radnor. What's up, Grant? Come on. Yo, hey, what's up? Tonight. How's it going? Not too bad. I just got out of work and uh, watched some of the Sixers game. I was pretty happy with um, how they looked tonight. And I was just kind of looking around the NBA tonight and saw some highlights of what's going on. I've been watching a lot of the Nets. And I think for the first year out of since, the process, since Embiid's been healthy and we got Simmons and everyone, this is the first year I think we actually have a legitimate chance if we can beat Brooklyn. I'm not really too worried about Milwaukee and Boston anymore. I just want to see what you think, how they match up well with Brooklyn, because I think if one of Brooklyn's stars goes goes down, we can beat Brooklyn in a seven-game series. Yeah, no, I, I do too, Grant. And, you know, I don't want to have to bank on an injury um, because, you know, you put all three of those guys together, it's going to be tough, but they're a really bad defensive yep. team, and they haven't played a lot together, and I do think that matters when you're talking about making a run to the finals. I mean, they might be good enough where – it, it might not matter that much, but uh, I certainly think the Sixers have a chance. They have nobody who can guard Embiid. Uh, nobody. Yep. And, you know, I think the Sixers at least could maybe slow those guys down. So that one is is a matchup I think the Sixers have a shot in. The one team that you didn't mention that I would not count out that does scare me a little bit is Miami. I, I think Miami is legit. They were dealing with a lot of health issues early in the year, but they're getting healthy now. And um, Miami is a team that would worry me if the Sixers saw them in the playoffs. No, I 100% agree with you. I Especially in the, if they play them in the round right before they play Brooklyn, that might be a six-game series where they get beat down. And Brooklyn at that point might be coasting through teams. So that would definitely worry me, especially with the conditioning of Embiid and just coming back. But he's still got some time, obviously. But, yeah, Miami has the experience. I'm just not, I'm not banking on Hero or Robinson showing up again like they did last year. Yeah, I think that's fair. And Hero's had a rough year. Um, and and I kind of think that might have been a little fluky what happened last year with him. But uh, yeah, I still think you know I still think they're they're going to be tough. And I th- I think um, you know whether some combination of Brooklyn, Milwaukee, the Sixers, and Miami will be the four teams left coming second round. Yeah, there's there's really no chance any other our teams are there. I yeah. got a question. What what do you think about this thing that's going on with Benson and Sister? What's going on with that? Is it affecting him? Sister, I don't, I don't really know. I appreciate it, Grant. I don't know what's going on with his sister. I know she's on social media a lot. I, I, I don't know what is going on with Ben Simmons in general. I mean, and I've defended Ben Simmons quite a bit, quite a bit, over the course of his career. Um, and I still think he is a very good player. But that's all he is at this point. He's a very good player, and he's a player with a big flaw and his big flaw. I've said a number of times, the jump shooting aspect of it doesn't bother me. It it just doesn't like, I don't think he needs to be a knockdown three point shooter. He took a couple mid range jumpers on Saturday night, uh, made a couple shots. Um, I don't really care that much about that. What I care about is the free throw shooting. And Ben Simmons is a guy who can go to the line whenever he wants to. He can get to the basket whenever he wants to. But it all stems from the free throw shooting. Because when he's not making his free throws, he's not as confident. Therefore, he's not aggressive in going to the free throw line. And if he could just shoot 
eighty percent from the from the line, which there's no excuse for why he can't. Like his free throw stroke looks good, like it looks fine, but I am more confident that Dwight Howard is going to make free throws in Ben Simmons. That's a problem. Like that is, there's no excuse for that, and they are going to be in a situation in the playoffs where teams are going to put Ben Simmons on the line. And he is going to need to knock down free throws. Because it can't just all be Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid and the three-point shooters all the time. Um, Ben Simmons is going to have to make free throws. And he's going to have to be aggressive going to the basket. And the Sixers are going to have times in the postseason where they're going to need a 25-30 to point night from Ben Simmons. They're just going to need it. And right now, I'm not confident in him doing that. Like, I don't think the three-pointers have ever been that big a deal because, I mean, just look at Milwaukee when they get to the playoffs. Like, they're a good regular season team. But come playoff time, teams are fine with Giannis chucking up threes. Like, they're, they're fine with it. Like, they want Giannis doing that. And Milwaukee is not better because Giannis shoots threes. Like, Giannis is not a good three-point shooter. Milwaukee is good when Giannis is attacking the basket. Now, teams defend him differently in the postseason, and that is why Milwaukee struggled. And Milwaukee doesn't have the luxury the Sixers have, and they don't have another guy who's a, you know, a main scorer. They have Drew Holiday now. Maybe that'll change the equation for them this year. The Sixers have Joel Embiid. They have Tobias Harris, so they don't need Ben Simmons to be the focal point of the offense all the time. But the jump shooting's never really bothered me. The free throw shooting really does. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Matt and Hamilton. What's up, Matt? What's going on, Tom? How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, just want to talk about Girardi and then tie it into the other sports. I mean, start. I just want to say we haven't had real excitement in the town. I feel like, I mean, we're starting to see glimpses with the Sixers, but I'm, I'm just going to start, start this conversation by saying we haven't had real excitement in the town, I feel like, personally, since seeing Carson Wentz early in 2017. Or that was the season, yeah. So, since that time, I mean, I'm looking at the Phillies. You're talking about Girardi. I mean, yeah, I just feel like I, I'm not going to – I didn't watch the game tonight. I don't – I listen to the game sometimes on the radio. I'm more of a football basketball guy. But I do I do watch a little baseball. But, you know, he won the championship with the Yankees. Like, anyone, anyone could. And then he got fired. So it's it's an upgrade over Kaplan, obviously, but who wouldn't be? You know what I mean? So if he don't get to the playoffs, I feel like next year and make a little progression this year, I mean, then then you're looking kind of down with the Phillies. So I'm kind of taking a negative tone. What I'm going at is with all four sports. I mean, I'm just uh, what I don't know. What do you think about Girardi as far as as far as those segues? Uh, you know, I I think I think Girardi has not done I mean, a great it's job. A yeah, early, it early. is. It is. But I mean, you know, if we count last season, which I think it's fair to count last season, um, I don't think he did a very good job last year managing this team. And, and yeah. you know, the early returns this year haven't been good either. And, you know, I just I think if we're looking at it objectively and we're going to evaluate this manager the way we anal- we evaluated the last manager, you know, I, I think it's certainly fair to criticize him. Yeah, I mean, I just wasn't super excited when we hired him. Like, yeah, he won a championship with the Yankees and everything, but I didn't, 
I don't know, man. I just, I, I, I wasn't my favorite choice at the time. And, but anyway, I just wanted to segue. I, I mean, we'll see what happens, you know, but I think they got to get to the playoffs next season just to, just for his names, for his sake. But as far as the other sports, I mean, Ben Simmons is looking like worse than whatever's going on. So, I mean, we'll see what happens in the playoffs, but with all the super teams out there with Brooklyn, I mean, I don't, I think we got a shot against Brooklyn, but what happens if we don't beat Brooklyn? Are we going to trade Ben Simmons? So then, and then the Eagles got to hit on the draft. I just think we're looking at the upcoming years of despair if we don't win a championship soon, at least with the Sixers. And the Eagles got to hit on the draft. So, I mean, I don't know, man. I just, I'm just kind of looking negatively at some things. And I remember we had a conversation, I don't know if you know, remember this, like a year ago. Okay. I said I would trade Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell for Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Now, I love Joel Embiid. You know, I love Joel Embiid. But look how look how good Donovan Mitchell is playing right now. Yeah, I'm I still mean, mad. I still I still think you're crazy with that one. I'm not doing that one. I, I know. I, I wouldn't – I mean – I I, 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 you, I, I can, now, but I, at the time, like, they were fourth in the West or something. Right. That's all it was. They're first and now. I just yeah. remember talking to you about it, like, and you were like, no, that's crazy. We would yeah. Yeah. That was a year ago. Look, look where the Jazz are now. No. Because you can yeah. build around players like that. You know what I mean? No. Uh, yeah. No, I hear you, Matt, and I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm not I, – I, it's less about Donovan Mitchell, and I, I, I – it's less about Donovan Mitchell. Like, I like Donovan Mitchell. I am not a Rudy Gobert fan. Like, I don't – Dan, what do you think of Rudy Gobert? I, I don't think he is anything special. He's a guy you can – you can play off the floor. Like, he's unplayable in certain matchups. He's a good defensive center all around, but he's nowhere close to as good as Joel Embiid. And no. Joel Embiid owns him. Like, no, there's absolutely no way I would make that trade. And, and that's a team where they are having a very good regular season. And and Quinn Snyder is a, a tremendous coach. He's done a tremendous job with that team. They are overachieving. But... I mean, is there anybody like I don't know if there's anybody out there. I don't I'm not taking the Utah Jazz seriously in the West. No, like, they're a regular season team that have to prove their playoff worth. Yeah, the, like, sa- the same way that the Sixers do in a way because they haven't gotten past the second round with this group, but there's no way that trade you, the Sixers are losing the best guy in the trade. And Embiid who is head and shoulders above Rudy Gobert. And I get Mitchell's good, but no, there's no way. And that team I don't think comes out of the West. The Lakers are missing Anthony Davis and LeBron right now. I still think they're the favorites. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I look at Utah. I'm not taking them seriously. Of those kind of teams that are overachieving, I think Phoenix is better than Utah. Um, I actually really like Phoenix. I, I doubt they go to the finals either, uh, but I, I agree. I think if if LeBron and Davis are healthy, it's probably going to be the Lakers. I like Denver. I think Denver's got a shot. Um, the Gordon trade was a good trade for them. Uh, you know, I don't think Gordon's a, a star or anything like that, but uh, I think he fits well there and he's, uh, you know, certainly flourished there. Um, and then the Clippers are kind of the, the wild card. I just, I don't know, something weird about the Clippers. I don't, I don't think they, they're making a run to the finals. Not a Clippers fan, even new coach and nah. not, not doc anymore. I think it's really, I think it's Lakers nuggets and, I mean, the Clippers are in the mix. I wouldn't be shocked. But I, I, I would give the Suns an out through, outside shot. I think they're probably just a little too young. They're probably a little too young. I mean, they are 
they're a fun watch. Like they if you are. Ever catch them late night on TV, like Chris Paul, uh, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and Bridges. Mikel Bridges yeah. is the one that got away, isn't he? Like played locally. The Sixers literally had him in their possession. Yep. And they traded him for Zaire Smith, and we all bought into the star hunting. Th- I mean, that was a real miss. Yeah. Imagine how nice it would be to hit, have him on the Sixers right now. No, he's a, he's a hell of a player, and yeah, that's that was a that was a big mistake. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Talk a little more Sixers when we get back. Uh, and uh, whatever, whatever you want if you want to get in open lines right now. Uh, talking Eagles or Eagles draft and Phillies as well as they lose the first two uh, with the Braves on uh, in, in Atlanta. Another one Sunday night. Sunday night baseball for the Phils uh, uh, later on tonight. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly. Let's go back to the phones. Go to Jim in Havertown. What's up, Jim? Yo, Jim. What's going on, man? What's up, brother? How's it going? All right, man. How you been? Good. How are you? All right. Congratulations on your son. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Did you name him Junior? I did not. He is, uh, his name is Thomas, but he's not a junior. Oh, I understand you do. You have different middle names. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. If he's Tom, though, brother, you and I both know he's junior. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. Believe me, when you go to the, what's the name, Little League Games, and because uh, I got a junior, and uh, when you go to the Little League Games and uh, hopefully get involved with coaching, lucky enough, like I was, uh, I'm gonna, friends are going to ask you, hey, how's junior doing? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd like to do I don't want to be like the head coach, though. That stuff's too political and, uh, you know, Little League and stuff like that. Ah, brother, ain't that bad. Yeah. Most people just treat it for what it is. Right. It through sports. Yeah. It doesn't get real competitive to like, I'll say, 12 years old. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then travel teams start up. Yeah. That 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 is a little rough. Yeah, right. I thought, yeah. I, I know, like, from playing, you know, some of the parents take it way too seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, I got I got a deep voice and I'm loud, but uh, yeah. I didn't I didn't take it I didn't take it serious. <laughs> there There's a go. picture of my first team there, and all my assistant coaches or anybody helped me out. There's like five dudes in the picture. That's <laughs> I don't that's care who cool. you were, man. If you want to help out, you helped out. That's yeah. cool. That's that's good, Jim. That's that's, that's nice. the way to be. Yeah. See, that's the easy way to be with it. There you go. Um, what was I going to say, brother? Um, what's the name? I don't know if you heard John Johnson talking about four quarters and a dollar. You hear a scenario with that? I did not. No, no. What was John talking about? So he'd rather have an Embiid than four good players. That's that's what the scenario is. Like four quarters does equal a dollar. I agree with John on that. I'd rather have an Embiid than them four solid guys. I I, I, I didn't give the argument to him. No, the argument obviously, brother, is the Golden State Warriors. Right. And they picked up Curry. They didn't. They, nobody knew Curry was going to be a superstar. So they had four quarters in the beginning, but one of them happened to become a superstar. So you do. I agree. You do need the superstar. But who were the other okay. quarters though? Like Clay and Draymond. But who was the fourth guy? I got I got to say Iguodala. Uh yeah, I don't yeah, I mean I guess MVP, MVP brother the championship. You can't you can't downplay No, he had a he had season. a good finals that year. Yeah, he did have yeah. a good finals. Um yeah, I mean even though LeBron did have a good series aside from that game 6, but yeah. yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Well, you know, you, everybody knows you need 3 in what's next. Right. In basketball. Usually you, you three, do. And... You need three big time players and then you, you need to surround them with what you can, you know. What the game is about. That's why I'll never understand how they let Reddick walk away from this team. I, I don't get it. Oh, we're J- Jim, JJ Reddick. JJ Reddick is nothing anymore. He 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 is he is 
uh, a bit piece who, who got overpaid by New Orleans. You, you, the Sixers aren't missing anything with JJ. Tommy, he faded away where he's at now. But what did he do for us though when he was here? Right, but why were they going to resign him to a big contract? Like they didn't have the money to do that. Eh, you, yeah, I know you get into the business end of it a lot. That's why you were Howie supporter a little bit. I am a Howie uh, supporter. Well, he, won, he did win a Super Bowl. I'll say that for him. There you go. He knows how to do it today. He got what's the name, dude. You know, we talk about it all the time that you need to draft well, right? In, in football, right? of course yeah. you do. That's that's your biggest part of your roster. So that's just common. That's common sense. But he signed every free agent he signed that year had an impact for that team. So they got supremely lucky with that. I won't say lucky, but you know, he picked the right players. I, I will say lucky a little bit because uh, when you sign free agents, especially the Eagles, it doesn't always work out. Anybody, really, anybody around the league. Free agents, as we all know, don't always work out. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Jim, I I don't think lucky's fair. Like, you can't say he's lucky when he has success and he's an idiot when when he fails, you know? I mean, is he unlucky with the draft picks? I'm the the one who put it out there, bro. I'm the one who just said he won a Super Bowl. So I give him credit for the Super Bowl. No, I know, but you you also said it was lucky, though. Well, how about an injury, bro? How about Blunt gets injured or Howie Long's son gets? What's, what's Long's first name? Yeah, but they did. They, yeah, I mean, every team has luck when it comes to injuries. You know, that's what I, mean. I guess I guess I'm in it that way. Okay, let's let's bro. Let's, let's let's face it, bro. He's not an adept or an astute freaking what's the name study of talent. He just picked freaking Rager over the, over one of the best freaking what's the name now Jim, wide receivers in the in the league. They've had they've had some bad drafts the last couple of years. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you they haven't. Um, but I think a lot of that stems from them not having a lot of picks and and it's glaring the the misses they've had. Um, I think they're gonna. I, I am confident that they are going to have a good draft this year and they are going to be able to come out of this draft with, with several productive players with the amount of picks they have. Well, since the year we won the Super Bowl, brother, what is that? How many years ago now? Is it four now? Four, yeah. So, so we're due. Yeah. So I'll no, say he's due. It's true, he's due Jim. for a good year. I appreciate it, man. Sorry, I'm up against it. Got to move on, but I appreciate it. But, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. I understand that the draft record isn't great, but, I, you know, I like what, how he's done this offseason, and, I mean, I'll give him a chance. I mean, we'll see in two and a half weeks. If they blow the 12th pick, I think I'm on that night. I'll rip them for it. Um, but I have a feeling that this draft is going to go pretty well. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly. Uh, in the next segment, I want to let you hear, I, I referenced it earlier, that Nick Sirianni film session uh, on Eagles.com. And I thought it was a pretty interesting listen. So we'll play some of the sound from that and talk about that a little bit. Um, because I think it's, it, it's interesting to hear the coach in a different environment here. So uh, I want to let you hear that for those who didn't hear it earlier in the week. But I did want to do a quick Masters update here. Um, as we head toward the final day of the biggest tournament of the year, as I mentioned earlier, Hideki Matsuyama in the lead at minus 11 right now. Uh He's off at two four. They tee off late at the Masters. I'm surprised. I don't know why they don't tee off a little earlier. Does that have to do with the sunlight? Uh, you know, because I, I I figure you'd want to tee off earlier so it doesn't get dark. Uh, that is surprising. I guess for ratings, they want to push it back, but they are on the East Coast and right. they're having longer days here. But you would think the last thing you want is it to carry on a Monday or well the playoff so they changed the playoff rule I know in a number of majors the Masters is the only major tournament where it's a one hole playoff right 
Is it? I thought I it was. Think, you might be right about it. I that. think so. Because the U.S. Open used to be a whole fifth day. Oh, yeah. They finally got rid of that. That was great. When Wait, Tiger was, and Rocco mediate. It was great. Their... It, it was the, it, but they got rid of that. At most majors, I think it's like a three or four hole playoff. The Masters is literally like one whole sudden death, which is actually really intense right. if it happens. Okay. So you got Matsuyama minus 11. This guy, Will Zalatoris, uh, Mark Leishman, Justin Rose, who I do not want to win this thing. Xander Shoffley, all at minus seven. Corey Connors, a Canadian golfer, at minus six. Uh, Spieth, minus five. I don't know. Who do you got here, Dan? I I'm, I think Matsuyama holds on. Um, and if he doesn't, I, I would go with Xander Shoffley. I, I almost want the odds. I want to know what percentage of the time someone with a four-stroke lead going into Sunday at Augusta holds it. Yeah, the Masters is tough, though, because it's a you know it's one of those courses where – you can fall apart. Like, I well, mean, it's not. They call it the Masters for a reason. It's right. supposed to be challenged. They play it every year. You and like, I always found that the most interesting about the Masters. Every other tournament moves. They play this course every single year, and there's still weird aspects to it that guys still can't figure out that are yeah. pro golfers, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'll go with Matsuyama. So. I'll I'll go with the that's that's the chalk pick. Yeah, that's the coward's pick. I'll I, pick I it just anyway. Don't want Justin Rose to win. Did you notice what the odds were? Did you look at it? I didn't. I, I might look at it. Maybe I'll bet on Rose. But, yeah, if it, I, I was going to put 10 bucks on him. Didn't. And now I just don't want him. I could tend to win 1000 Man, that would be heartbreaking. Uh, but next up, we'll uh, let you hear some of this Nick Sirianni sound. Some good stuff. Uh, so that's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly uh, with you for another uh, hour plus here uh, talking about a number of different things, including the Eagles. And, you know, when you look at this season, it's it's going to be a different kind of season for the Eagles. And as I've said many times, like, I think this team has a chance to be better than many people expect. I'm not buying really any of the other teams in this division. Certainly not the Giants. Uh, Washington, I mean, Washington doesn't have a quarterback. Uh, so I don't know how you could buy into them at this point. And, and Dallas, you know, let, let's see it on the field. I mean, Dallas great on paper every year. I understand Dak got hurt last year. But that defense was brutal regardless. And that team wasn't, wasn't good last year. And they're always projected to be great on paper. And it never really plays out that way. And... The Eagles, to me, are the most unpredictable team in the division for several different reasons. And one of which that, you know, is it makes that so is the uncertainty surrounding the two most important positions uh, in an organization, which is quarterback and head coach. And with Jalen Hurts, you know, we'll see what happens with him this year. I think the Eagles are in... A pretty good position right now, and and as I said, I understand I'm in the minority with uh, praising Howie Roseman because whatever you know, people just say whatever the consensus is, and you know people think you know it's a hot take to say Howie Roseman's done a good job this all season, but yes, you know you can disagree if you want, but um, it's objectively true based on what we've seen. Before that, that's not really the conversation right now. Um, I would argue that this organization ended up being put in a difficult situation because the quarterback imploded, but so be it. 
you know, I think Howie Roseman has done a nice job this offseason giving this team draft collateral cap space, and you look at where they are. They should have ways to improve the quarterback position beyond this year if Jalen Hurts isn't good enough. You know, you get a free opportunity now. And this season, in many ways, is a year where you see what you have. And sometimes you need to do that. It's not, you know, the situation you necessarily want to be, and you'd love to be a Super Bowl contender. But if you're not a Super Bowl contender, I think you should go this route and figure out what you have. Don't try to keep forcing it, as the Eagles did the last couple of years. And that was a mistake. But now they are doing things the right way. And this is a a basically free audition for Jalen Hurts this season. And if you're a second-round pick, that's all you can ask for. And we'll see how it goes. Um, Best-case scenario, Jalen Hurts plays very well, plays like a top-15 quarterback in the NFL, and you can use the cap space, you can use the draft picks elsewhere, and you can build the team around him. That is the ideal scenario. But if he's not the guy you hope he, he can be, you have all of these other ways to go get yourself a quarterback. You know, whether you move those picks for an established guy. Um, we we discussed it a little bit, and I'm sure we'll discuss it over the course of the next week here, but the Eagles continue apparently to be hovering around this Deshaun Watson thing. Like, we'll have to see how it all plays out legally. Uh, you're not going to trade for a guy if he is going to be punished by the league. And if this stuff is true, I don't think the Eagles would want him anyway. And, you know, I think they're kind of waiting to see how it all plays out. But you have the collateral to be in the mix for a guy like that. You have the collateral to be in the mix for a guy like Russell Wilson after this season, even though I don't think this team is, timeline-wise, a fit for Russell Wilson. You have cap space to potentially sign a quarterback. Like, you have a lot of different ways to potentially go out and get a quarterback. But hopefully Jalen Hurts is the guy and you can just move forward with him. But the other, you know, factor in all this is Nick Sirianni. And he is really the most important person in this organization right now. And he isn't a complete unknown. Like, I wasn't a big fan of the hire. Not because I really know anything about Nick Sirianni. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I've, I've been studying the Indianapolis Colts offense inside and out this past year. I haven't been. Um, but the way the Eagles arrived at the decision, I didn't like. Like, the fact that they basically just went out and said, we're going to get Frank Reich's top assistant, which is the way it at least per- I perceived it. I didn't love that decision. And much was made about Nick Sirianni, the introductory press conference, uh, you know, and that kind of of difficulty that he had in meeting the media for the first time. I didn't really care that much about that. I don't care what my head coach sounds like in a press conference. It was the most ridiculous criticism of Andy Reid, you know, for years. People um, screaming about Andy Reid and, you know, times yours, all this stuff. Like, and and what he'd say in press conferences, who the hell cares? Like, Andy Reid's a damn good coach. That's what I care about. Same with Doug Peterson. Like, Doug wasn't great in press conferences. Doug was a pretty good coach who had the respect and command of his players, and that's the most important thing. Chip Kelly was good in press conferences. The players hated him. Like, it doesn't matter. So I don't care about that. Um, I care about how the guy connects with players. And I I wanted to talk about this in this segment and play these clips because 
this is this gave me some confidence in Nick Sirianni. And again, we will see how he is as a coach and the schemes that he has when the season begins. But a so big of a part of NFL coaching is talking to players and connecting with players and having a relationship with players. It's why Doug was a good coach. Like, this year was not a good year for the Eagles. But that was not a team that quit. All of Doug's seasons, um, and I'd say most of which, the season wasn't going great around Thanksgiving. Uh, the only one it was, was was 2017. But 18, 19, even 16, those teams were trending downward and with a coach who did not have that kind of respect of his players, those seasons would have gone on the rails. They didn't with Doug Peterson. And his teams fought back. His teams kept playing for him. And that's an incredibly important part of being a head coach in the NFL. And it's something that Nick Sirianni is going to need. And talking to players in a locker room setting is much different than talking to the media. And PhiladelphiaEagles.com did a tremendous job this week of giving you a peek behind the scenes at Nick Sirianni. Uh, As Fran Duffy, uh, who does a really good job for the Eagles, sat down with Nick Sirianni. They looked at some tape last year of the Indianapolis Colts, and really over the last couple years. And I wanted to play some of these clips for you because I thought it gave you a real good peek into Nick Sirianni in a more comfortable setting, a setting that... He will be relaxed in, and I feel like this is the way he's going to be with players. And if this is the way he is with players, it's going to connect. Like, players like guys that aren't phony. Like, Chip Kelly was a phony. They like guys that are real. You know, and Andy Reid would present one thing to the public. Andy Reid wasn't that way behind closed doors. I mean, he if you hear any of his former players talk about it, whether it's Ike, whether it's Hugh Douglas, you know, Andy was a different guy when he was not in front of the media. And they need to have that kind of relationship and that kind of relatability. And Nick Sirianni, I think, will at least have that part of the job down. And here was Nick Sirianni first just describing a play that the Indianapolis Colts uh, ran last season. Okay, so this is a little bit different. Now we're getting a longer, fast guy the ball. People are blowing out of this other side, right? You can see T.Y. Hillen and Zach Paschal blowing out this coverage. They're running a three-dog pressure. We get the safety out of there. They're bringing the nickel. We're going to pick this up. The nickel gets out of there, or pardon me, the safety gets out of there. T.Y. blows the corner out of there, and they got one guy to cover two now, right? So Allie Cox is coming across. Michael Pittman's coming across. All right, now, this is tough for you. This is tough for you, linebacker. I think number 58, you got to cover two. Who are you going to pick? All right, so he drops back out of there. The ball's out of Phillip Rivers' hand quick. And we turn that thing into a long play. What can't be unnoticed here is the ball placement by the quarterback. The ball placement by the quarterback, does Michael Pittman have to break stride? Does he have to break stride? I would say no. No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> long, shoot. Long I was point. asking you the question, Frank. That's Come right. on. And, like, you can hear the emotion. I like that he kind of, you know... Gets on Fran, Fran a little bit, uh, you know, as far as matching his intensity level. And that's the kind of stuff, like, people might look at it as hokey and high school kind of thing. But that, I'm telling you, I think that really plays with players. It does. And it'll connect with players um, on this team. And, and I like getting that kind of peek behind the scene. Here's another one uh, from Nick Sirianni. And then, Coach, real quickly before we move to the next one, talk about the route from T.Y. as well, because he looks like he holds that 
vertically before breaking across the field, right? How does that affect that safety Abrams deep? Everything we talk about, Fran, is to run a sharp, crisp route. Like, I don't like banana routes, right? I don't like the, uh, we're going to roll into it. It's stick your foot in the ground and rip it, right? Because if we can get ourselves going vertically, like T.Y. is doing right here, stick our right foot in the ground hard. We always say it's your foot, it's your body, it's your head sticking hard to the right here to move Abram to the right. Look at again. Look at 15. Look at Paris Campbell. There's no banana there. Here's what happens when you banana it. That guy gets in your hip. And that throw to the quarterback is a lot harder. So here's what I tell the receivers. If you make it easy for the quarterback to throw you the football, what's going to happen? Dude, he's going to keep coming back to you. Make it easy for him. Don't run those banana routes. There you go. He doesn't like the banana route. But, um, you know, that's honestly one of the things about Sirianni that I'm very interested to see is his impact on these wide receivers because that's – one thing you you hear about him and, and where he does have legitimate um kind of pool around the league is he has this reputation as a great wide receivers coach. I mean, there are stories about Keenan Allen in, in in San Diego, now in LA, but San Diego at the time, where Sirianni's the receivers coach there, and Keenan Allen, who's obviously an established vet, loved him. Like and thought he was instrumental in his success. And I think it's part of Sirianni's hiring when you talk about him coming in, the impact he can hopefully have on a Jalen Rager. I mean, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, we'll see. I don't know if that's uh, a project, a reclamation project that is um, going to be possible, but we'll see um, if the Eagles draft a wide receiver. What's the kind of impact that Sirianni could have on a first-round receiver if it is Devontae Smith? You know, I'm interested to see that, and uh, I, I enjoyed hearing him talk about wide receiver play there. It's obviously his kind of specialty coming up as a wide receiver coach. Here's more from Nick Sirianni describing another play from last season. So this one right here is we're trying to push this ball downfield, as you can see, right? We got a route on, a very similar route with the deep cross. It's just people are getting there different ways, okay? We're trying to push this ball down the field with the play action. They do a good job of covering it. You can see Minka Fitzpatrick driving the crosser by Paris Campbell right here. But what we do right here is we get the ball to a guy with the ball in his hands off the check down because everybody sunk out of there, Right? It's take what the defense gives us. The defense wants to give us an underneath, we'll take it. I like this clip that you picked right here because not every guy yards after catch looks the same. Mo Ali Cox looks different than Michael Pittman, looks different than T.Y. Hilton, right? So look at how he creates this. He creates this with power, right? He creates the yards after catch with power, right? Sink out of there. You can look at the emotion on the sideline. I love that. Let's Jason Michael, our tight, go back. Go back. <laughs> Look, that's Jason Michael, our tight end coach, because he's the tight end coach here. Look at look at the teammates. Look how much love they have for each other. That's Jack Doyle. Look how excited. That's Eric Ebron. Look how excited that tight end room is that Mo Ali Cox just got a little touch right there and bowled over the Steelers' defense. Look at the energy it brings to the entire sideline. And one of those guys is me. I'm not... I'm excited. All right. I'm just not as excited as those tight ends. Like, gosh, I got to get myself that excited. That was awesome. Hopefully you can feel how excited I am right now. Like, I'm telling you, that stuff is going to play with a locker room. It is. And, and you know, it gives me a little more confidence in Nick Sirianni because he's going to be uh, 
you know, I, this is going to hinge on his success. Whether the team is successful, you're only successful if you have a good head coach. If you don't have a good head coach, none of the rest of it matters. And the Eagles have at least have a history of hiring good head coaches, at least in the short term. Like Chip even worked in the short term, had back-to-back 10-win seasons before it fell apart. And, you know, it, it does make you somewhat hopeful. Here's one more from Nick Sirianni. Come on back. I want to see one more thing from the sideline. Right there. Okay, look at this. All these guys, this is right here in the top right. Can you see the Colts emblem in the top right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Those are all our practice squad guys right there. Because if COVID, they got the luxury box. Okay, they don't get that in a non-COVID year. All right? Because of COVID, they got a luxury box. And this that is so cool too, right? That's awesome. It's just such a team. It's just such a connecting thing together. He jumps in the stands. <laughs> you know what you should do? You should show this clip. And then you should show that picture of him jumping in the stands with all the guys on top of him. I mean, that's freaking awesome. All right? Because why? Michael made the play. T-Moy made the block. Mo Cox made the block. Phillip made a great throw. But those guys in the corner of the end zone helped them get ready for the practice all week long, which is so cool. And, you know, it's one thing to be good with the media, as we talked about, but I don't care. I care about a guy that knows how to talk to players and knows how to motivate a locker room. And as I said, with the Keenan Allen thing, you talk to the guys in Indianapolis, like Nick Sirianni was a very well-liked coach there. And we'll see if it plays a head guy. Um, but I, I, I feel better about Nick Sirianni now than I did when he was hired. I didn't like the process, but I'm going to give the guy a chance. Like, every coach deserves an opportunity. And, like, we've been talking about Joe Girardi earlier on. Um, Joe Girardi can get better, but Joe Girardi's had his opportunity, and so far he hasn't done a good job. Like, and that's just the honest assessment. And if Nick Sirianni doesn't do a good job early, come out and say it. But he deserves the benefit of the doubt, and he deserves a chance. And... Um, I'm willing to give him that chance. And uh, the more this goes on here, the more I get excited about this team, about what Sirianni could do with Hurts. Because, hey, if Sirianni can coach and Jalen Hurts is an NFL quality quarterback, this this rebuild will not last very long. Like, this team has the capability to get better. They have the resources now after getting rid of Carson Wentz and getting rid of that contract, getting the draft picks back. They have the resources to get better and get better quickly. And I'm very excited to see how it's all going to come together in 2021. Uh, When we get back, I want to play you an interview with Tim Kelly, who I had on the other night, Phillies Nation. Talk about the Phils. That's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly uh, with you on this Sunday morning. Um, As I usually do uh, when I do get guests, because uh, I mean, obviously, just working these hours, you know, you don't get a lot of a lot of guests and you don't want to wake people up in the middle of the night. I, I, you know, don't really ask people to come on typically because, you know, who wants to get up at three, four in the morning? Um, to come on, but I, I did the 10 to two shift the other night on Thursday and caught up with our buddy, Tim Kelly. And, you know, this is prior to the Phillies two games with the Braves in Atlanta this weekend, but 
you know, we talk mostly about a lot of big picture stuff with this team. Uh, and Tim does a, a great job for Phillies Nation. Also, a former producer here at WIP um, used to produce this shift as well from time to time. Um, and I always love talking to Tim uh, about the team. And, uh, you know, we get cover a lot of big picture stuff. Obviously, the first week of the Phillies um, with their first series against the Braves and the series with the Mets and um, wanted to play that interview for any of you that missed it on Thursday night from 10 to 2. Uh, so here is the interview uh, from the other night with Tim Kelly, editorial director of Phillies Nation. Tim Kelly, editorial director, Phillies Nation, part of the staff here at Odyssey Sports. Uh, you can find him at Tim Kelly Sports on Twitter. Uh, Tim, what's happening, man? Do you? It used to be SunTrust, right, down in Atlanta? Yeah, I believe it was SunTrust, and then they changed it to Truist, which is really an awful name. Yeah, it is. It, it seems like a really beautiful park down there. Um, I was in one. I was at one game in Atlanta. I don't know if you, you're a big baseball guy. Obviously, you probably remember this. You remember the game when the lights went out when the Phillies were playing them, and Paul Bird got in a fight with I think it was Eddie Perez at the plate back in yeah, the late nineties. <laughs> vaguely, but I was yeah. probably five years old at the time yeah sorry i just kind of uh, that just kind of jogged my memory there game i was at down in atlanta but uh let's get into it here uh tim uh phil's five and one start obviously you couldn't uh you really ask for much more um in terms of getting this season underway uh your impressions of this team uh so far through six games and and you know what's been your biggest takeaway so far well, I think the Phillies had a lot of high expectations for the top three in the rotation. And even though Aaron Nola was not great yesterday, they were able to get a win. Zach Wheeler, of course, was as good as you can be just about in his first start. He'll get the ball again tomorrow. And Zach Eflin looked very good. So if the Phillies can have Matt Moore and Chase Anderson just kind of keep them in games and the bullpen continues to pitch the way it has for the first six games, you know the lineup is going to come around. That, that just isn't a concern. Now, yeah, you talk about that starting rotation. Like you said, Nola, Wheeler, you're pretty confident on a start-to-start basis what you're going to get from those guys. But, you know, with Moore and Anderson, how confident uh, are you that they can hold hold up? And, you know, when you talk about Eflin, uh, do you see Eflin as a guy who could potentially make that leap and and be a, a more reliable starter you can view as a frontline guy? Yeah, I noticed throughout the course of the offseason that the Phillies were really, they they would talk about, we're sure we have three guys and they need to find four and five. And the third one was obviously Zach Eflin. Aaron Nola said he thought he's, quote, a top-tier guy. So, yeah, the Phillies are confident, and he's shown nothing in the spring and then in his first start to dissuade you from that. So the Phillies spent all this time with Eflin, Pavetta, and Velasquez, and maybe they'll end up with one of those three as a a legitimate MLB starter for quite some time. And, you know, you look at the bullpen, Tim, you mentioned it. And so far, I mean, with the exception of that Velasquez outing the other night, I mean, they've been fantastic. Uh, When you look at those guys, uh, do you think this is something that is more sustainable uh, with this bullpen, the upgrades they made? Or do you think, um, you know, it's kind of just a little fool's gold in the first week here? No, I think it's sustainable to some degree. Now, it it is going to depend. You are super dependent on Jose Alvarado, who has had health problems and control problems throughout the course of his career. So that's a little worrisome. 
But, I mean, Connor Brogdon looks like he is maybe the best reliever on this team. That's the team that is Archie Bradley, Hector Nair, Sam Coonrod has looked good. So, Brandon Kinsler, you're in a pretty good situation with that bullpen. I think it might not be a top-five bullpen, but it is just leaps and bounds better than it was last season. And, you know, we look at the changes on the roster with the bullpen, but also uh, the change on the coaching staff uh, with, with Caleb, Caleb Cotham coming in. Um, do you think that he's had a big impact, and, and uh, do you think he will continue to have a, an impact, if so, on a guy like Eflin moving forward especially? Yeah, guys seem to really like him. I think he is newer school, but he's someone that seems to have a good bedside manner in the sense that he'll present the new school stuff to you if you want it. But if you're uh, more older school, which Aaron Nola is, I think Zach Eflin to some degree might be as well. Uh, he'll he'll meet you on that level, which is it's extremely important to be when you're a pitching coach. I think he's helped uh, Zach Wheeler to this point. It, it looks very good. Zach Wheeler was impressive last season, but he's a power pitcher that should be striking people out more than he did last year. And that first start was, I mean, that, that was Cy Young caliber stuff. Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was there at that game and he was, I mean, he was tremendous. You could tell the Mets just had no chance, chance to hit him um, in that one. Now that's the good with the pitching staff. Let's get to the one negative so far, which was Vince Velasquez the other night. And he's just so perplexing comes out in the sixth, Three up, three down, looks tremendous, comes out in the seventh. And, uh, you know, four walks, that's kind of where the game gets away. Uh, Why is he still on this roster, Tim? And do you think the Phillies are kind of running low on their patience with Vince Velasquez? I I would find it hard to believe the organization hasn't been running low on their patience for a few years now. What I will say is that Vince Velasquez is an extremely hard worker. He's someone that always takes accountability when he doesn't do well. I almost feel like to some degree, though, he wants it too much and he gets in his own head sometimes. And, you know, it's unfortunate. Maybe a change of scenery will eventually help him. But he's on this roster because you're going from a 60-game to an 162-game season. And as perplexing and frustrating as he can be, he has given you innings in past seasons. So, if Matt Moore or Chase Anderson collapses, you have a guy that you can at least put out there and know you'll get four or five innings-ish. And, you know, that is better than some of the other options you could potentially have. So that's why he's here. Whether he's here to finish the season, we'll see. Now, you look at the offense, Tim, and, I mean, the guy I've been most impressed by so far is is Reese Hoskins. And looking at him, I think in a lot of ways he is the X-factor on this offense, um, what have you seen so far from from Reese? And do you think there uh, that he could turn a corner and become more consistent? Because consistency is obviously something he struggled with in the past. Yeah, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Reese Hoskins has been since he came up a guy that when he is hot, he can carry a lineup. It's a question of when he's not hot hitting. 230 for that month instead of 200, I think. So he is someone that, uh, even though he hasn't walked a ton so far, he's going to consistently get on base. He's going to drive runs in for you. Reese Hoskins, look, when the, the Phillies haven't had him in the lineup last year, when they didn't have him in the lineup last year, they really struggled. Two years ago when he hit a wall, they really struggled. So you're right, he is the X factor. So far he's been excellent, and the, the Phillies need him to keep that up. And a guy on the other side of the infield, maybe a little slower start to the season, but but hits the the three-run bomb 
on Wednesday with Alec Bohm. Uh, what have you seen from Bohm, and do you think that he is a guy who they can legitimately rely on uh, all season right now and, and that he won't have kind of that sophomore slump? Yeah, I do. I, I think he is the best uh, offensive prospect that's come up for the Phillies since Brian Howard. He wow. He's a special offensive player, and he's someone that as – uh, the, the power continues to develop. He only has like five home runs, but they're, the, the average distance so far is over 400 feet. If he can become a guy that hits 30 home runs a season, think about how good Jason Worth is at his peak, and I think Alec Bohm has the potential. And I don't say that lightly, but I think he has the potential to be an even better offensive player. The question really is the defense. And I, I've been really surprised so far. He, he's looked really good, and it's not just he's made one or two plays. Like he, he just looks a lot better, a lot more comfortable there. The jury is still out. It, it's been six games, but I, I noticed this in spring, and it's an extremely encouraging sign for the Phillies because if he can just be an adequate third baseman, his bat makes him extremely valuable. Yeah, definitely. And you look at that lineup, it looks pretty good top to bottom. Obviously, the one you know significant hole being out in the center field. You know the issues that the Phillies have had out there with with Hazley and, and Roman Quinn. Um, what do you think they can do, and what do you think they will do uh, to solve that problem? And do you think it's going to be something that's more immediate, or do you think they kind of they kind of wait it out here to see how this situation develops? Yeah, we haven't really gotten a good indication exactly what the timeline is for Scott Kingery, and who knows what you can expect from him. Uh, Odubel Herrera lingers at, at, at uh, Lehigh Valley as well, so I, I don't know what they're going to do there. But it, it didn't take me more than two games to realize this ain't it. Like They, they have a problem in center field. Um, Adam Hazley, it, it seems like a nice guy. He, he, just, he has not shown much of anything at the major league level offensively, and, and he's had some blunders defensively. Roman Quinn has a place in baseball. It says the 26th man that pinch hits that fields in the outfield late in the game potentially. So he, he has a, a place, but it, it is not as someone that's starting three or four times a week. So this to me is a position like maybe you can wait till the deadline to add another lefty reliever or add another starter. I don't know that you can wait till July to add a, a legitimate option in center field. And there's not a ton of great center fielders, but the, the Phillies, if they're going to be a playoff team, are going to have to figure that out. And I, I don't think the answer is on the major league roster currently. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see what happens with, with Odubel as well and whether he gets brought up. But one uh, other thing I wanted to touch on with you, Tim, uh, non-Phillies related baseball thing. It's been, you know, obviously a topic of conversation since it was brought in last year um, and it has returned in 2021. Your thoughts on the runner on second in extra innings. Is it a rule you like? And uh, do you think they should keep it moving forward? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it last year. I, I was one of the people saying from the beginning I thought it was a good proposal. Um, you know, I, I don't dis necessarily disagree with people that say, well, maybe it should start in the 10th or 11th inning or uh, the 11th or 12th inning. But I, I like the rule a lot. I, I think people don't really want to watch 14 innings. I, I don't want to be at the park until 2 o'clock in the morning. It, it's just – and Joe Girardi's made this point a few times that – you have one of those 14 or 15 inning games, and it just ruins your bullpen for an entire week. It's not a good product. 
I like the rule quite a bit. I think it's made extra innings much must-watch TV. And we've now seen it with the Phillies a few times that just because you get that runner on second does not guarantee you're going to lose. A, you're going to get in at bat. And the Phillies have actually had quite a few times now where they've stranded that runner. Yeah, and, you know, it, it definitely adds that excitement. And, and you don't get your Wilson Valdez moments, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it, it does move the game along. And one more for you, Tim. I did see that you recently adopted a dog. How's, how's that going? How's it going with the, uh, with the new dog at home? It, it is going tremendous. I'm extremely happy. Her name is Zucchini, so it, it is going very well. All right, good. Well, uh, I'm glad to hear. Well, Tim Kelly, Editorial Director, Phillies Nation, also uh, part of the staff here at Odyssey Sports. Tim, thanks for hopping on for a few minutes, man. All right, thanks, Tom. Yeah, take it easy. That's Tim Kelly. You can find him at Tim Kelly Sports on Twitter. So uh, glad Tim could hop on for a few minutes. And there it was. That was uh, my interview with Tim Kelly. No relation, by the way. That was always a joke uh, that many people would, would make uh, when Tim and I work together. But we are not related. Uh, completely uh, random that two Kellys in the same play. The, uh, being a Kelly, you uh, learn quickly that there are a lot of people with that last name. It's a pretty common uh, last name. So uh, thank you to Tim Kelly for joining us. And, you know, we talked about a number of topics there in terms of the long-term uh, view of this team. And one of, the, one of the things we touched on, and, you know, he's going to be one of the most important players, really two of the most important players. And I've covered it this week when I've been on, but when you look at the guys who are going to determine this Philly season, like in my mind, this season is going to come down to two players more than anybody else. And it's going to be Reese Hoskins offensively. It's going to be Zach Eflin in the pitching staff. And um, Hoskins got off to just an insane start in the first week of the season. Um, you know, really carrying the Phillies. I thought his two at-bats, uh, specifically in the Saturday night game, in which the Phillies are up one nothing. That was the game where Wheeler was lights out, second game of the season. Uh, he was able to get a double down in the count uh, with the bases loaded to drive in two runs. I thought really opened that game up. And then the Monday night game, the game the Phillies worked their way back, um, thanks in large part to some poor Mets defense. Um Reese Hoskins really got that inning going where, you know, Phil's had two on one out. It can go either way at that point. Got the heart of the order coming up, falls down 0-2 in the count, and it's able to poke a single the other way and really keep that inning alive. And, you know, when you see that kind of thing from Reese Hoskins, it gives you a lot of confidence moving forward because he is one of the streakiest players in baseball. We talked about it a lot. Consistency has been an area in which he has really struggled over the course of his career. Um, We saw when he came up how hot he can get right off the bat, and uh, he hasn't been able to duplicate that really, that kind of stretch, and that kind of stretch is hard for anybody to duplicate um, from a power perspective. But, you know, you look at 2020, you look at 2019, he went through stretches where he's pretty hot, and he went through brutal stretches. I mean, you know, when we look at how the Phillies collapsed in 2019, a lot of that had to do with Reese Hoskins totally collapsing. He's a very important part to that lineup. What he does in the two-hole, I mean, you look around baseball, the guys that are in the two-hole are, are, are really, in many 
lineup's the most important hitter. And the combination that Hoskins has of a power and getting on base, being able to work walks is really important. Now, he's cooled off a little bit in Atlanta, obviously 0 for 4 on Saturday night. Um, didn't really come through there. And his defense at first base is a problem, certainly. Um, and it's even more reason why he's got to hit. You know, because if he's going to be somewhat of a liability on the field, you need him to hit at the plate. And then when you look at the pitching staff, another guy we covered uh, in that interview there was Zach Eflin. And Zach Eflin is so important to this team. And, you know, you look at last Sunday, good outing against the Braves first time around. Um, this time, not as great. I mean, six innings, gives up four runs, gives up the homer uh, to tie it, just 77 pitches. And you'd like to see a little a little better of an outing, but overall threw the ball pretty well. I mean, that's a that's a really dangerous lineup in Atlanta. He fared better than Zach Wheeler did this time around. And I am high on Zach Eflin. Like, I really like Zach Eflin. And it's interesting because I think he was the guy who who we kind of overlooked, you know, because you look at like what, two, three years ago, the Phillies were in a position where they had these three young starters. And it was which one is going to come out and be the guy. And at first we thought it was going to be Velasquez. That obviously hasn't worked out, hasn't panned out. Um, Then you thought it was going to be Nick Pavetta. Nick Pavetta, just mentally it wasn't going to work for him here. Maybe it'll work in Boston. He had a good start in his first start. Um, Maybe Nick Pavetta can turn the corner in a different spot. And hey, maybe that's what Vince Velasquez needs as well, is a fresh start somewhere different. But Zach Eflin turned out to be the guy of those three that, that really emerged. And I don't think that was what was expected. You know, I don't think that people expected Eflin to be the one of those three that was going to kind of break out and emerge as that starter who could be a part of your rotation, the young guy who who could be a part of your rotation moving forward. But Eflin is a key piece for this team because, you know, Wheeler, yeah, he had the rough start Friday night. I'm not really worried about Zach Wheeler. I think Zach Wheeler is the number one starter in this rotation, honestly. I think he's more reliable on a start-to-start basis than Aaron Nola. Um, Still like Nola. Still think he's a front-line guy. Uh, I just don't think he's a number one. I don't know if either of them are a legit number one ace in the vein that the Phillies used to have, you know, when they had three of them in in Doc and Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels. You know, I thought all three of those guys were legit number ones. I don't think Nola or Wheeler... Either of them are at that level. But Eflin's going to be a key piece. And when you look at the two X-factors of this team this year, it really is Reese Hoskins and Zach Eflin. And in many ways, I think this team will go as those two guys go. So talking Phillies, we'll be back in the 5 o'clock hour. I do want to let you hear this. Tell tell us your story Glenn Ray did with Joe Crawford. A very interesting interview. So we'll play part one of the Joe Crawford interview. That's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. A second of technical fouls by, by Joe Crawford. And the Don Do you Beat up in there, nothing happens. It's our, it's the same ride. Kids... Kobe's trying to get to the basket. Devin was trying to Wait get a minute. A to B, and he winds up at C. That's the same Devin thing. Devin who? Oh, come on now. Don't no, I'm that. serious. I don't even know what you're talking about. Which play you're talking about? 
Welcome back. It is Saturday at noon. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now, and a time we always look forward to tell us your story. And what a fun one we have today. Nobody in NBA history officiated more playoff games than Joey Crawford over his 39-year career. The Havertown native called fouls in more than 2,500 regular season games, 374 playoff games, and 50 NBA finals. Uh, Crawford's father, Shag Crawford, was a major league umpire for more than 20 years. His brother, a major league umpire as well. And we are delighted today to be joined by our own local Delaware County's Joe Crawford. How are you today? Awesome, Glenn. Thank you for uh, having me. You and Ray, appreciate it. That's our pleasure. So we... We always like to start at the beginning, and I want to talk about growing up in a house where your father was a major league umpire. Um, that must have been, I mean, that's that's not when, when they have career day and kids talk about what their dads do. Most don't get to give that. What was that like? <laughs> you know, was, I, I thought everybody's father was an umpire. You know, what, what did I know? It was, you know, it was awesome, to, to be honest. It, I was a baseball degenerate because of my dad and uh, going to games and things like that. It was just, it was just awesome. It was a, an awesome existence. And uh, in the summertime, obviously great when he was working the Phillies, he always went to the, to the games and the, and uh, every game in the series, which was awesome. You're going to, you know, back then it was Connie Mack and that stadium, but uh it was it was it was fabulous. It, it really, and we didn't even, you know, we didn't see him for six or seven months. You know, as soon as, when he left for spring training, that was it. He was gone. And it's not like today. Today, I think the umpires in Major League Baseball get a week off every seven weeks. But my father, you didn't see him unless he worked the worked the Phillies, and it was, but it was great. I mean, you know, it was it was uh, it was really cool. It was uh, and being a baseball guy, it was. It was it was perfect. I loved it. I can imagine. I uh, the one thing I would wonder though, Joe, would be, I mean, when when your dad's working games at Connie Mac, obviously you're you're probably going to be there, and you're probably nine, ten, eleven years old. What is it like for you to be in the stands hearing people hollering things at your father? You know, my father was uh, a real professional guy, <clears throat> and he was obsessed with officiating uh, and he made sure that didn't cheer if somebody did say something about the umpires you didn't respond because he didn't want anybody in, in the stands to think that uh, he was pro Philly or so you just sat there like a, a gnome you know if, if Philly's got a hit or somebody hit a home run, I never cheered. And it was all because of my dad. And even today, if I go to a baseball game, my wife hates it because she says, you just sit there <laughs> and, and you don't cheer. You know, it, it just, you just watch the game. And it was all because of him. He, he, he was so cognizant of the fact that somebody might say something negative uh, because he was from Philly and you were sitting in the stands and you, and you cheered for the Phillies. But I, you know, I, I just didn't respond. If, if somebody hollered something, Shad, you suck or something like that. It, it, you know, and in Philly, 
you know, you heard everything. And sure. um, I just I just didn't respond. You just didn't. Because so, I was afraid of what – I was afraid of what would happen afterwards if I told him. I said, Dad, I told this guy, you know, he was screaming at you. He would have he got really angry at me. You know? yeah. I, I never said a word. So in the late 60s, you attend Cardinal O'Hara High School, um, and it, it turns out there's three other— The Lions of Cardinal O'Hara. There you go. There's three other NBA referees who attend there, not all the same time as you, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. But again, you got the dad who's the ump, the brother who's the ump. You go to school to all these, these guys who are future NBA referees. What's in the water out there in Delaware County? What's going on? <laughs> well, you know, Glenn, it's, I, I talk about this a lot. Uh, I was fortunate being from Delaware County, and I took up refereeing that you had Jake O'Donnell from Clifton. You had Eddie Middleton from Ardmore. You had Joe Gushu from Philly. And these people were a phone call away so you could talk to them about officiating. If you were interested in the NBA, as I was as a young kid, to, to, to try to get to that level as a ref, Jake came to see me ref. I'm, I'm working a CYO game out in um, Mother of Good Counsel out on Lancaster Avenue, and he came to see me work. And that's the same thing with the people from around here. If someone reached out to me, I always went to watch them work. Uh, now it's, 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 it's easier because you have the computer. You can sit and watch referees at the, and the convenience of your house. But those um, – Eddie Malloy and Duke Callahan, and uh, they were really terrific referees. Mm-hmm. You knew right off the bat that they were no-brainers. But there has been numerous people that I told that they weren't NBA referees. So that's hard, yeah. but it's, it's that, that's what you do. You just say, hey, there's nothing wrong with being a high school ref or a college ref. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it, it, it's... I think when you have the numbers that we had from this area, it's easier to get tutelage. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, sure, yeah, the it, network grows. Yeah, and it was. It was. It was really terrific. It was terrific to, to live here. I'm wondering the, the obviously the influence with your dad, who was not just a major league umpire, but a major league umpire of terrific prominence. I mean, your dad was a major league ump for more than 20 years, worked a lot of big games, worked a lot of big World Series games that were memorable. He had a very distinctive style behind the plate. He, he was in that low crouch, like resting right on the catcher's back. Everybody knew who he was. And very then good, Ray. Very good. Well, I saw it so many times, Joe. I saw, I saw him work so many yeah. games. And then, of course, your brother was, was a, became a baseball umpire as well. But you went the other way. Yeah. I mean, you decided you, you went to basketball. Why was that? Because it would have seemed like ba- baseball would have made more sense. Uh, I loved baseball. Do not get me wrong. And I still watch baseball games constantly. I, lo- I love it. But the officiating end of it, I grew up, um, I went to St. Pius 10th in uh, Broomall. But I hung a, a lot with uh, the guys down in Havertown. And there was a, a, a playground right next to the school. And all we did was play basketball. I mean, constantly. And we, then we then the palestra. 
So I just, I just really gravitated towards it. I really, really liked it. And, uh, and I said to my dad, I was a kid. I was only like 14, 15, 16 years old. I said, I'd really like to, you know, ref. And, um, I just, just started to, he told, he told me, he says, Joey, just, he said, just watch the refs. So we were lucky back then. I don't know if you guys remember, but when we were, I was 14, 15 years old. So we're talking early sixties. The Sixers did have a TV contract. I think it was on uh, UHF. Yeah. Channel 17. Yeah. I used to watch the games on TV and then on the Sunday, on Sundays, watch games. And I would watch, Strom and I would watch the shoe and I would watch Eddie rush and I will watch those guys. <laughs> and, you know, if I go to the plester, I would watch, uh, Hanzo, I would watch Grossman. I would watch Herniak. And that was just what I did. I, I, I really, really loved the, the officiating end of it, but it was because of really the, the area that I grew in, I grew up in. Everybody was a, a basketball people. It's fascinating. I mean, it's such a different approach to sports than most kids take. So you start refing uh, right out of high school, uh, and and I know you're going from gym to gym, and then you're working the Eastern League, um, and then you got to the NBA. You're 25. What was what was the big break? <laughs> you know, I was lucky. I was working in the Eastern League on the weekends and working everything around Philly, uh, publicly, Catholic League. And um, I was working in the Baker League. I got in the Baker League. Sonny Hill let me work those games So in the summertime. So I was working, you know, pro basketball. And I was scouted. I used to be – I was scouted by a, a, a guy, uh, Sid Borgia, who was an old-time NBA ref. And Sid, you used to handwrite your schedule and send it to Sid. And he'd either come to a he – he actually came and watched me in a double header in Memorial Hall. And he would get on the baseline as the game is going on. And, so, and I would run down to the baseline, and he'd grab me by my pants and he'd be moving me as the game is going on. But Sid really liked me. He 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 took a liking. You know, I I had that pizzazz. And back then, Glenn and Ray, most people that took up NBA refereeing were older. But I was a young guy who had. I knew at like twenty two because I kept watching all the pro refs how they called an offensive foul, how they called a loose ball foul, how they called goaltending. I, I don't know how many of them are I was getting right. <laughs> but I actually, I actually look the part. And then when you're a young guy, it, you know, wow, this kid's really talented. You know, people, they catch up to you, your talent level, but I was, I was that guy who, really came across, wow, this young guy's hustles. He's, he gets up and down the floor. He looks the part. And that's why they hired me. That's great. Did you find, did you find, because you do get to the NBA at a, at an 
at a, an early age as, as a young guy. Uh, and you had paid your dues, like Glenn said. I mean, you would work the Baker League. You would work the Eastern League where there's uh, a lot of tough gyms and a lot of tough crowds. But you get to oh, the yeah. end. Yeah. I'm, sure I'm sure there were. I've heard, I've heard Sonny Hill tell yeah. the stories. But when you get to the NBA oh, no, and, tough, yeah. when you get to the NBA and you're still that young a guy, uh, did you find the veteran players, because it was an older league. I mean, it was, a, it was a league of older veteran players. Did you find they tried to take any kind of advantage of you because they thought you were just this kid off the street? Brutal. They had no, the, the, my first five years in the NBA, I was just, I was distraught most nights. I had no idea. I had no idea, but I was so lucky. Joe Gushu, a Philly guy, Kensington guy, he, he, he took me under his, I mean, I, I don't know what I'd do without that guy. And I was distraught. I mean, I, I was calling technical fouls after technical fouls. I was, ejecting people uh, I, I I tell a story I, I walked in the locker room I think it was my third year in the league I was in Chicago and Al Adels was probably the greatest guy I have ever met in professional basketball and he's coaching Golden State at the time and I eject him on an out-of-bounds play and I walked into the locker room after the game and I just sat there and I put my my head in my hands and I went, I don't know about this. And my partner was a guy by the name of Bob Rakel who lived in Cincinnati and he didn't get it, you know. And he's looking at me, he says, What's the matter? I said, Bob, I just threw out Al Adels. I said, Don't you get it? I said, We're not talking about somebody that's, you know, a crazy man on the sideline. Al Adels. And I was distraught. And I, I would call Joe Cashew all the time. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. Mm -hmm. you know, so you get to the hotel or, or I'd wait till I get home and I'd call Joe and I'm figuring I'm going to get some kind of, you know, sympathy. Joe would just eat me up. He would just annihilate me. He'd scream at me. He'd call, he, he, he used to call me some dirty names. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, but he, he was he was the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, "Listen, you got talent." He said, "You just go out and you just keep doing what you're doing." He said, "They'll accept it sooner or later." But I was I was beside myself. I really was. Those first five years was hard, hard. Well, you're also a kid, and so you're learning confidence. I mean, most of the fans who watched you over the years know you as a mature ref and so on. But uh, when you were starting out, I, I saw a great story that you told that I'd love you to give, which is I, I guess it was your third year, and you're playing in L.A., and there's Jack Nicholson right by the warm-up table oh, yeah. where you are. G give yeah. us that moment, if you would. <laughs> you know, I told it again the other day. You know, you get into the league, and and, and – you know, I watched this guy. One of my favorite movies of all time was Easy Rider. Mm -hmm. You know, and I watched it, and Jack's in it. And I don't, I'm not that guy that's looking to say hello or go over to hug Jack Nicholson. I know my place. I'm in the league a couple of years, and I don't know that he knows me. I have no idea. So, right where we took our warm up jacket off, Jack sat there. Jack used to sit there with a guy by the name of Lou Adler, who's a music producer, another wonderful man. So 
I never said anything to him, but Joe Gashew would talk to him. Earl Strom would talk to him. Hubert Evans would talk to him, but I didn't, I didn't talk to him. So it's like my third year. I pulled the jacket off. I put the jacket down, and I catch Jack's eye, and I just go, how you doing, Jack? And he looks at me, and he goes, how you doing, Joe? And I don't say anything, but inside I'm going like this. Jack Nicholson knows me. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, yep. I can't wait to get back. To, I can't wait to get back to the hotel. And now I don't, it's like it's three hour difference. You know what I mean? So I call yeah. my wife. I said, Jack Nicholson knows me. She goes, do you know what time it is? <laughs> I said, I don't care, Mary. Jack Nicholson knows me. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I I. I it might be my favorite moment as a ref. That's great. <laughs> Did you? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming with many games as you worked at Madison Square Garden, you probably got on a first name basis with Spike Lee as well. How how was your yeah, what was your relationship I, 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 with Spike? Ray, I used to talk to him all the time. He's just one of those avid fans. He's a great dude. I mean, is he hollering at you as, a, as what you're repping? Of course. Hey, you're sitting that front row like that. You're paying that kind of money. You can holler all you want. <laughs> But he's a really a nice man. He's just a basketball guy. He loves the game. He loves his team. You know, you don't you don't mind fans like that. You really don't. You you, you like it. In fact, you, that every you want every arena to be sold out, nineteen thousand. You want them to be. That means the the sport's doing well. That's how you look at it. Joey Crawford is our guest. The great. It's funny, Ray. You and I have been talking about having a referee on for a while, and I'm glad we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the longtime famous NBA Thank ref. You. Our pleasure. You talked earlier about how you were you were a hothead when you were a younger referee, and you got a you got a reputation as a whistleblower and as as a sometimes angry guy. Um, yeah. You have worked, or you did work, when you were um, when you were uh, on when you were doing the job with a local a guy we know, a local sports psychologist, Dr. Joel Fish. What did what did you oh. learn from him? What did you get out of that? You know, I, I Joel was. A godsend to me. I I uh, I talk very openly about it because it it really really helped me. He, I didn't know why I did the things that I did on the court. Some things I was not proud of. If a player said something to me, I would, you know, maybe say something back, and which I shouldn't have done, or eject somebody where I shouldn't have done. And and I always and then when I uh, got suspended over the Tim Duncan thing, I really pursued a, a, a relationship with, with Joel and spoke to him on, a, on an ongoing basis. I just wanted to know why I did what the things that I did under pressure, because I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not like that at home. You know, I'm, I'm not like that out in the, out in, out in the world. And, uh, and Joel really, you know, he said, Joe, your problem, a lot of it is passion for your profession, which my father gave me. But he just would give me different exercises to use on the court. And, you know, where when I would feel myself going, put your hands behind your back, something something that 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 would tell you in your mind, Joe, calm down. And it. it, it 
it was the best thing I ever did to, to actually go and just be able to talk to Joel. Because what happens is you, you, you start to think, wow, am I really that? Am I really nuts? Am I really, <laughs> am I really <laughs> this crazy man? And, and he just, he was, he was awesome. I mean, he was just, uh, I talk about him all the time. In fact, I texted him. We texted one another about a month ago. We stay in, uh, and some sort of touch. He's just a great guy. Wonderful just, man. Just to clarify, we got about one minute before the break. Um, the Tim Duncan thing, not to belabor it, but y- you cl- you called a couple tees on him on the bench, and it ended up you challenged him to a fight. Is that correct? I I, I the the challenge of the fight um, is accurate, but I I said it in this term, uh, being a Philly guy. Yeah, I'm not stupid. A six ten guy could kick my tush. I'm five ten, <laughs> so I, yeah. I I looked at him and after I called the two T's and he was still hollering and I looked at him. I said, "What do you want? You want to fight me? Is that what you want?" And that's what that was the tone. That was how I used it. But it was the, it was the Philly term. I I knew I was going to get my, if, you know, if I fought somebody like that, I would get killed. I yeah. I knew that. But it was you know what you're trying to do being a guy from Philly. Um, I'm just as tough as you. You know, really, I'm a coward. You know, the only reason I was tough is because I had the whistle in my mouth. But <laughs> That was part one of Glenn and Ray's Tell Us Your Story with Joe Crawford. And, you know, from time to time, I will, you know, play some of these Tell Us Your Stories that Glenn and Ray do. And it's, it's interesting, like, I, and I've said many times, like, this has been one of the better things to come out of the pandemic, um, you know, that Glenn and Ray have started doing the Tell Us Your Story. I believe that's when they started doing it, right? When this all hit, we didn't have, have sports. And they've kind of kept it going, and I'm glad they have. And I find a guy like Joe Crawford to be one of the more interesting guests. Like, it's great when they have, you know, their big-name guys, like Brian Dawkins and and Deuce and guys like that. But I always find these interviews to be... The, the fascinating ones, the the older guys who have been in sports for so long. I remember, you know, a few months ago when they had Al Michaels on, I thought that one was was really an interesting um, interview. And this one with Joey Crawford, I mean, is 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 fascinating because I mean, Joey Crawford's a guy who, I mean, I grew up watching sports, and and he's one of those officials that you know, like you know when Joey Crawford's on a game. Now, that's not always a good thing. Like, Joey Crawford is, is what was basically a villain in the NBA. Like, when you look at the way he interacted with players, and I thought one of the more interesting parts of that first half, we'll play the second half coming up in the next segment here. Um, but when he talks about how he had to talk to a sports psychologist because, you know, he would lose it on the floor. And, I mean... Obviously, a much lower level, but when I was at Temple, I was an official. I was a supervisor of, like, intramural sports. Uh, One of my favorite jobs, by the way. Like, my entire life, like, I had several different kind of jobs, you know, working in a restaurant, which I I hated that. Um, Working in a swim club, didn't really like that job too much. But refing intramurals at Temple was my favorite job ever. Um, But of all the sports, and I do, I mean, I did everything there. 
flag football, softball, you know, uh, floor hockey, whatever, uh, you know, they needed me to do. Um, but refing basketball, like, it's really difficult. And even at that, at that level where, you know, the, the, it, the players aren't great, but still college kids, when you get two pretty good teams together, like it moves, it moves fast and it is a very difficult sport to officiate. And I get overwhelmed officiating those games. I can't even imagine the difficulty to referee at that high of a level. Like it is crazy. And, um, you know, I just find it fascinating. The guys who grow up and aspire to be refs. You know, it's probably, if you want to work in sports, if you want to work in a sports arena, you know, a sports game, It, I mean, it's definitely the more realistic route to go for most of us. We just don't have the athleticism to be a professional athlete, clearly. And if you don't have the athleticism, then, okay, you don't have the talent, you're, you you don't stand a chance. But to want to be an official, um, you know, it seems cool, I think, to most people, but... It's not a job I would want to have. Like, it, it is by no means a job that I would want to do. To be an NBA official, an NFL official, because you, the only time you notice them is when they do something wrong. And we get on officials, and, and we always will. But it is not an enviable spot to be in. And it is not a job by any means that I would want to do. Like, I don't care how much money... They're paying you. Obviously, everybody has their price. But, like, you would need to pay me a lot of money to take a job like that. That high pressure. And I just, you know, I think it's fascinating when when he talks about wanting the sold-out stadiums. And I guess you do if you're in that kind of, uh, if you're in that kind of job, you, you somewhat like the attention and you want the game to be doing well. But, um it's just kind of crazy, and I imagine the pressure is immense. And and it is interesting when he talks about the refereeing tree to come out of this area, because that Delaware County area is a hotbed for NF for for NBA officials. It's crazy, um, and we all know about Tim Donaghy. And it was actually interesting one time. Uh, you know, he was doing his tour for for that movie that came out. And Tim Donaghy, when we were down at Borgata, I was engineering the morning show, uh, stopped by on stage for an interview. And that that was, you know, Tim Donaghy's an, an interesting guy. Um, has an interesting story. Uh, but, you know, he got caught up in all that gambling stuff. And that was a, a big scandal. And I, I, you know, imagine the guys around here who come from that area didn't really like um, the fact that Tim Donaghy pretty much tarnishes uh, you know, the names of all those officials a little bit and that kind of like that kind of grouping of officials because they all come from that area. But it is fascinating to hear him talk about just watching his dad ump games. And to I, I'm just very interested in people who aspire to do that job because it is not a job I would I would like at all. And um, I enjoyed hearing Joe Crawford talk about it. And that was kind of his lead up to being an official and learning from all the older guys, stuff like that. When we get back, I'll play the second half of it. 
um, because I, I really thought this was a, a good part of it as well, where he talks about his relationship with certain players, a lot of which were played in Philadelphia. Uh, so we'll get to that when we return. I'm Tom Kelly with you till six sports radio, 94 WIP. No, no, no. I got this. I got a tech on him and a tech on him. Tech. Tech. Right there. Well, that voice that you hear is the great Joey Crawford. Longtime legendary NBA referee, local guy, our guest today on Tell Us Your Story. Ray? Yeah, Joe, when people think about you, they think about uh, on the court that you, um, I'm listening, you were not shy about handing out technical fouls. You were not shy about ejecting people. Um, that was became sort of part of your persona, but I'm I'm just wondering what was what, what was the the point where you the, you would not allow somebody to cross over a line. Everybody has a line, and I, during the course of a game, I'm sure all players are saying things to you about calls and stuff, and it probably gets a little heated and a little animated. But what at what point does a guy step over the line where you feel like you got the technical or maybe eject them? What do you, what what is that line in your mind? You know. Ray, again, great question. The I'm not real proud of of my reputation, um, but there are certain things that happen in a game that irked me, um, and it was it's it's almost like I would never say to Billy Cunningham if he was coaching on the sidelines or or Doc Rivers or anybody like that. I would never question their, you know, timeouts, their substitutions, those types of things, because it's not my expertise. My expertise is refereeing. So when I was questioned and I would answer the question and then you would get the bully back where somebody says, ah, you're full of, Mm -hmm. that would anger me because I would say to them, well, why would you ask me the question? I gave you the answer, and now you don't like the answer, so now you come back at me. Where I should have, you know, it's a woulda, coulda, shoulda thing, you know, and and Joel helped me with that, too, is just run down the court. Run down the court. That's where I would sometimes hit somebody with technical fouls, or you don't have to curse. Really, as a player or a coach, they they know when they want to take. They really do. If they're constantly complaining, constantly, I mean, every play, if they're complaining about Joe, that was an offensive foul. Hey, Joe, he's holding me. Hey, Joe, he hit me with his knee. You finally, what you do is you say, I'm, I'm in that job now. I have to teach it. That's my position now. Is this, you have to say, listen, that's it. Now you warn them. Next time somebody says something, you hit them with a technical foul. It's always easy when somebody curses you. When they curse you, that's automatic. I mean, you're gonna, you're, you're, you have to hit them with a technical foul because now you lose. That's why you're out there. You're out there to run the game. You're not out there to just placate people and let – Everybody say what every player or coach say whatever they want to say. Yeah. So you, that's your job. Your, your job is to run the game. So if you let somebody curse you, now you have all those players out there that said, "Oh, Joe's open open season." And I learned all that. All that stuff was passed down to me from 
from the guys from Philly, Jake and Gashu and Strom. That's how they ref the game. And that's how they taught me. Joe, let's talk about some of the guys over the years who were your favorite players and then some of the guys who were the biggest challenges. And I've heard you before, and and like a lot of a lot of people around the league, I've heard you start with Charles Barkley. Yeah, I, I, I just always thought – see, the amazing thing is, is Charles got a lot of tees. He got a lot of tees. Tees have nothing to do with anything. Rasheed Wallace got a lot of tees. I like both guys. They never they, – they just went out and competed. They competed. That had nothing to do with anything. Most times, the, the, the player that is the, the difficult player to deal with is the player that is bringing up a situation from a previous game, a previous year. They're the ones that – they're not forgetting it. Charles and Rasheed, they forgot it. They went out. They just played. They knew when they wanted to get a T. They knew when they wanted to get ejected. That's all part of part of the game. The person that's tough to deal with, are and, and coaches are involved too, are the ones that never let it go. They never let it go because refs let it go because they give T's and, and they eject people. We do it more than the coach or the player gets teased and gets ejected. I've had numerous players through the years. They could be out of the league 20 years and see me out in Vegas because I'm out there in Vegas in the summertime uh, in our summer league teaching officiating, and I'll see them out there. And they'll come. Do you, do you remember the time, Joe, you have called the team? <laughs> <laughs> they remember 25 years ago. Yeah. And it, it, it fascinates me. Because I really don't remember. But they think you do, and that that's the paranoia. Meant the more paranoia to them than it did to you. So, so <laughs> well, hold on. Yeah, so, because, yeah, we do. Yeah, you do yeah, it so much. Right. It's you, part of your job. I, I just want to I yeah. want to go I want to go over a couple of names uh, and and just get your you know your kind of snapshot of them. Charles Barkley being one, and I know you said Moses was one of your favorite and Minute. So give us just your little your little you know snapshots of those three. Charles was just awesome. He forgot if you ejected them the night before and you had them the next week, it was, it was over. They just played Uh, people. Moses to me was had just the the greatest sense of humor. I mean, he, he, there was, um, we were in Dallas. He's playing with Phillies with Dr. J and people wouldn't talk to Moses because they, 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 they thought he was like standoffish, but he was far from it. And his sense of humor was fabulous. So Doc has the ball and he wheels on the baseline and he, his foot goes on the line. So I call, I give the ball back to Dallas. Moses is under his breath. He's going like this. And remember how he talked real low? Moses went like this. He said, I want to put people on the line. And I'm looking, I didn't know what he said. And, and Doc is standing next to him, and he said, I said, Doc, Doc's laughing. And I said, Doc, what did he say? He said, Joe, he said, you know the tennis, remember back in the, the tennis days where they had, when the ball hit the line and the beeper went off? Uh-huh. Moses went, they ought, to put a, they ought to put a beeper on the line. <laughs> <laughs> and now I, I start crying, laughing. We're running up the floor. And, and, and we're, all the three of us were laughing. 
But he was so, he, he, his, his sense of humor was, was fabulous. And people didn't understand it. They didn't mm. know it. Manute was just one of those guys that was just, he knew that he was seven foot seven, and he, and, but he actually could play some. And the better days that he had was when he was playing the Golden State, and Don Nelson used to let him take threes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, he, and I used to sit, I, I, I'd stand there, and he'd take a three, and I chuckled to myself. So he hit, he'd hit the three, and we're running down the floor, and I'd look at him. I said, you've got to be kidding me, right? And he'd look at me, and he'd go, and he put his finger up, and he'd go, number one center in the league, Manute Bull. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what... I, just, I, just, I, I, lo- I love the guy. He, just, he, was, he was awesome to deal with. But there were was, there was so many more. Rick Mahorn was, Rick Mahorn was awesome. Jeff Rulin. They were just great. They would beat the hell out of one another. But they were, they were fabulous human beings. And you see them today. I, I talk to, to uh, the, both of those guys even today. And they're just fabulous. They just talk about the old days and, 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 and what used to happen on the court. But really fun times. I remember uh, Steve Javi, who's another one of these, uh, one of the guys, sort of one of the the Delco brotherhood of referees. Yeah. And he says you helped break him in. I mean, he says that you kind of took him under your wing and taught him how to do I this. But I, I remember um, he, he ejected a, a radio announcer from, from a game one time. Yeah. Uh, I, I forget where it was, Utah or somewhere, but whoever the radio announcer was, uh, Steve had said, I've had enough of you, and threw him out of the game. Have you ever thrown any of the radio or TV people out? No, that was uh, Steve ejected Mike Rice, whose uh, son, I think 20 years later, was the coach of Rutgers. And Mike was uh, a broadcaster for Portland, and Mike was hard on refs. And I think he, I think the story was he actually you know remember when the radio guys were courtside right and and uh, Mike stood up on Steve when he calls up to and Steve went over and threw him off the sideline and he he called me and told me what he did I said are you a nitwit throwing that guy <laughs> over the sideline <laughs> and he also Steve threw out the the guy down in um, Washington who was the uh, the, um, you know, like the guy that's like the Philly fanatic. The mascot. Steve threw him out. Yeah, Steve <laughs> threw him out. Did, did you ever but toss a mascot? Did you ever toss a mascot, Joe? No, I never did. No, I had enough tr- problem, problem with the players and the coaches. I didn't need uh, <laughs> um, <radio> people. <laughs> Joey, we, we've talked about some of the players and really already some of the great players when you, uh, when you mentioned Charles Barkley and Moses Malone. But I'm just curious – the 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 biggest names in the game over the last over the term of your career, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, um, were they as a group any different, any better, any worse, easier, harder? What were your relationships with the true superstars? Well, a, a lot of the the fallacies are is that that superstars get the calls and they get this, they get that. You know, come on. Truth be told, is they're superstars because they have the ball most of the time. So if the referee is going to screw something up, it's going to be with magic involved, <laughs> bird involved, Jordan mm-hmm. involved. They were those guys just played. They just played the game. Magic. I had. A, I was so lucky to ref all those guys. Kareem, 
Elijah one, Isaiah Thomas, all those guys. They just played the game. Did you have beefs with them? Did you call technical fouls on them? Of course. But they just played. They just played the game. They got to the next play. That's what the NBA is. That's what referees tell themselves. You know, you know when you screw up a play and you just say to yourself, let's get to the another get to the next clock. We, we, used to, we, we would say, let's get to the next 24 seconds because of our 24-second clock. But that's, that's our game. The technical foul thing and the, and the interactions with players and coaches is all part of our game because this isn't a – we're all – we're part of this game because it's our livelihood. A college ref, I mean, they, they may have a job or somebody might be able to – redline them and get rid of them or we don't have that in the nba you're a nba ref i have a game and i have an ejection in november i'm still going to see that team in december january february and march so i i, I told iverson this one night it was, it was who was not a bad guy he had a tough time with referees but he really wasn't a bad guy it was earlier in his career he was having difficulties with some refs I came and, and me being included, and I came out on the court, and he's the captain, and you go over to you have your captain's meeting five minutes before the the tip, and I said to him, Alan, do you know anything about NBA refs? And he said, No. I said, Do you know that we do this for a living? This is our job. This is what we do. This is how our kids eat. And he goes, He's just looking at me, you know, because a lot of the younger players don't know. They don't know what the the dynamics are. I said to him, Alan, if you're here 15 years, I'm going to be here 15 years. So we got to find a way where we can, you know, cope and do this together. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you're trying to do because you're going to have beefs. It's part of official player coach uh, rapport. And so you got to, you got to be able to deal with it. You know, Joe, if we talked at the beginning by way of introduction, the fact that you refed over 2,500 regular season games and you worked 374 playoff games, most of anybody, and you're a basketball historian to the hilt for sure. If you look back over basketball history, is there is there one? And I asked you, is there one game that was played that you didn't ref that you wish, if you had the opportunity, you could have refed? I've, I've been asked a lot of stuff, Ray. That, that's, I've never been asked that. Yes, it just hit me. I would have loved to have refed the game that was the worst, in my opinion, the worst thing that happened to our sport, uh, the malice in the palace. Oh, yeah. I think... And I'm not. I'm, I'm trying not to be an egomaniac here. I think I would have liked to have been there because I think it wouldn't have transpired the way it did. Because our three referees in that game didn't do very well. They caused a lot of that problem, and it wasn't on calls or anything. It was at the end where when. Ben Wallace and and Ron Artest went at one another. I think 
if I was at that game, I would have did um, numerous things differently. Okay. I, I don't know if that is is a lot of people might not understand that, but a referee's mind, I I would have loved to have been there, and maybe we wouldn't have had the embarrassment to our sport that we had because that means a lot to me. I don't like to see our sport embarrassed. Well, that was a tough that was a tough time in the NBA, and it was a tough time, I'm sure, for the officials because that Detroit team. Had that that was their personality. That was their style. It was it, it wasn't just one night. I mean, that was the way they played, and that was the way they won. So, ref in their games had exactly. to be had to be a challenge for you guys. Yeah, you knew when you went out on the court when you know you you had your hands full, and and you just had to attack the game, and 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 technical fouls, ejections, whatever you had to do. But I I think that in that particular game, if I remember correctly, and I I am correct, I think the game was like three minutes to go in the game and I think it's a three 13 maybe 15 point game and I would have ejected our test and Ben Wallace and got them off the floor immediately right just got them off the floor now you don't have our test laying on the table now the guy's throwing something at him and now the players start going into the stands and things like that I would have did I would have got rid of them real real quick and uh, it's just but that, that's what just popped in my head, Ray. I don't know if that no, that's, a, that's a good an interesting one. one. That's a good one, Joe. Uh, we've got about five minutes left. A lot I wanna, we still want to get in. And we, you talked about regrets earlier in the Tim Duncan episode being one. Um, you got in trouble with the IRS back in 1998. Um, that, I'm sure, was uh, – and it, because you're such a public figure and so well-known and got the publicity, that must have been an embarrassing episode for you. Oh, it was, it was awful. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible. It was, uh, we thought we were all going to get fired and, and, and I really had some problems there and, uh, dealing with that. And, uh, my lawyer at the time, good friend of mine, John D. Donato told me, he says, Joe, he said, true convicts don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you made a mistake and, you're, it's eating your stomach out, and it did. And uh, it was just one of those things where it was a part of our package, our uh, financial package with the NBA. But we should have, we should have uh, told the IRS about the money that we made, and we didn't. It was, it was, you know, it was going on for a number of years. That was the the financial package. It was, just, it was. Uh, I just want to let the audience, they don't know, if if I understand it right, you got you, you basically downgraded tickets, you guys, and didn't report the difference. Yeah, you had tickets, you had plane, yeah, you had plane tickets, and you got, you know, if, if you didn't go first class, you got the difference. Right. And uh, you were, you, you didn't even think of it, to be honest with you. You just got the, you just got the money. But we should have, we were wrong. We yeah. were 100% wrong, and, and we paid the price. It, it cost me it cost me dearly. And what it cost me was in in my stomach. I, I, I still talk about it to this day to people. You know, it was one of the worst things that ever happened to me, you know, in my life. Right. Yeah, I well I know that, that was it was part of actually your collective bargaining agreement as officials that you, you had the right it, to you had the you had the right to do that. The only mistake that you made was you didn't put it in the W two. I mean, but you certainly wasn't yeah. and, and you said later it was more a misunderstanding than anything else. 
Well, I mean, it, it was it was the strangest thing in the world because they they came after all of us and and, and uh, I pled my case. Steve Javi took his case all the way, and, and uh, the weird thing is is that he went to a jury trial and he won. <laughs> and there were other referees that that weren't prosecuted, and then there were some referees that were prosecuted. So the whole thing was convoluted. It, re- it really, I, and to this day. To this day, nobody understands it. My attorney, we talk about it all the time because we became really, really good friends. And we talk about it to this day. And and he said it was the strangest case he ever had. Some people were prosecuted and some people weren't. Yeah. Joe Crawford, we got to wrap up, but I want to ask this as as we leave. It was a 39-year career. I think I read, I don't know if it's still true, you only got to referee three Game 7s in the NBA Finals. You were part of so many legendary games and so much a part of the growth of the NBA from, you know, a smaller league into the powerhouse it is. You're a big part of that. Give us, if you would, the part of the job that you don't miss and the part you miss the most. Great question. Uh, the, the part I miss the most is just that that action, that, that out on the court I didn't care whether the game was an exhibition game or a finals game. I missed that feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just missed, missed that in my belly. Uh, if, I, if my legs were good, I'd be out there today, to be honest with you. Um, the mo- the, what I don't miss is obviously the planes and the hotels, because we were gone 20, 25 days a month. Some months you were on a plane every day, either you know going to a game or shooting home for a day. Then you're out on the plane. The, the planes and the hotels, I I I do not miss. But that actual being out there, Glenn and Ray, is I I miss that to my core. I, I really miss it. That's great. Well, you're a lifer. It's it's in the family blood. Your life, or Joe Crawford. I got to tell you, this hour has flown by. It's been it's really been a pleasure, uh, and we we appreciate so much you joining us for tell us your story. Thank you very very much for having me, Glenn Ray. I, I really really appreciate it. Thank you very very much. It's our right. pleasure. And that was uh, Joe Crawford on with Glenn and Ray. Just fascinating stuff. You know, a uh, very uh, as I said, interesting and controversial figure. A guy in the NBA who. I mean, you talk about non-player, non-coach over the last 30, 40 years in that league. He's near the top. I mean, as far as recognizable officials go in not just the NBA, but in all sports. I mean, Joe Crawford, Jerry West, I can't stand that guy. Um, But, you know, Steve Javi, all these guys are the ones that you remember. And I thought it was interesting. I'm talking about a lot of the different players, his feud with Tim Duncan, which was highly notable. Um, that that kind of came at the end of the first part when he talks about the challenging dunk into a fight, that it wasn't really what it was supposed to be, what, what it was reported as. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he got into it with a lot of players. I thought it was I, I, I thought it was interesting, the fact that one of his most liked guys was Rasheed Wallace. And that's an interesting part of it where – these relationships might not always be what you think. Like, I just imagined Rasheed Wallace just hated every ref and every ref hated Rasheed Wallace. Because if you remember basketball in the late 90s, early 2000s, Rasheed Wallace seemed like would get a tech every night. 
um, and a hell of a player, uh, but a guy that would get technicals and, and would get ejected. And I thought that part of it was was interesting when he talks about Rasheed Wallace and him knowing that, okay, well, in this spot, Rasheed Wallace might want to get a technical, might want to get ejected. and Because guys do do that um, and do kind of have that aspect of the game to, I guess, motivate their team in certain instances. I thought a great question that they asked him was, uh, you know, which game would he have liked to officiate? And the fact that he said the malice in the palace. And that is kind of, that shows you the ego a little bit where, you know, it, jo- Joey Crawford believing if I was refing that game, that would not have gotten to that point. He might be right. Um, but it does show the ego a little bit because that was, I mean, that got way out of control. Um, but uh, really good stuff. And, you know, I, I thought that was a, a worth playing because it was a very good interview with Glenn and Ray. Joey Crawford, if you didn't hear the whole thing, go to uh, check it out on podcast. But uh, an absolutely, you know, fascinating interview with one of the most with one of the most central figures in the NBA over the last 40 years. Uh, probably the most recognizable official in that league, uh, certainly in my lifetime and, and, and maybe NBA history. Um, so that'll do it for the show tonight. Thanks to Dan Wilson for producing. I will be back. Uh, tomorrow, filling in for Big Daddy Graham in the next three nights. So plenty to get to. We will obviously get to the uh, finale of, of Phil's Braves on Sunday night baseball. So Phil's on a national stage on Sunday night. We'll get to that. Um, I'm sure a lot of draft talk uh, as we are now about two and a half weeks away. Um, Sixers, everything will be in play the next few nights. So excited to be back on tomorrow at 2. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.